I'm a son of a bitch. Wait a minute, Doctor. What happened, Sally? He come up through the panhandle last fall, fetching a trail herd from East Texas. Fine breeding stock, he said they was. And he sold me a hundred head for six dollars a head. Three dollars under the going price. There, you see, nobody stole nothing oh. from her. Now, I remember that drive of yours last fall, Doctor. You started out with twenty-five hundred head and didn't get here with about, but about four hundred. Just had some bad luck, was all. Sure. Them cattle had the chokes. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if I could get going back to Chicago. <laughs> In those days, it was an absolute ball. We'd do two shows on Saturday. We'd do one in the morning, go to lunch, and there'd be one in the afternoon. And the total, we'd probably start at 11 and be through by 3.30 or 4 or something like that. It was joyful. It really was. Everybody looked forward to coming to work. Them cattle had the chokes. Was all through the herd. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Cowpox, eh? <laughs> Sorry. We're just getting My turn. We go through the hoy. Marley? Hi. By the summer of 1954, television was firmly entrenched in the U.S. as the chief mode of at-home entertainment. After the 1953-54 season, CBS, NBC, and ABC pulled the plug on many remaining sponsored or prestigious dramatic radio shows. Yet, for an industry whose golden age was abruptly coming to an end, radio's Gunsmoke and its production crew experienced a renaissance. The Saturday rehearsals were as much social as they were business. We had some some high old times. It was funny, Howard McNear sometimes used to refer to Saturdays when we recorded them as Dirty Saturdays. Sometimes somebody would make an inflection in a line that would come out slightly spiked and colored. And from then on, no matter what you said, the most innocuous line became really a dirty <laughs> bunch of, of words when they were not intended so. But these guys would would spend hours working up a riddled sound effect or something of the sort, and then we would all beautifully collapse. You know, on the frontier, a horse thief was often caught and hung because someone else's brand was on the animal that he'd stolen. But next week, a man is hung because... <laughs> and now our sadistic star... The camaraderie shared by this crew came right through the radio and was felt by the listening audience. Their level of comfort with each other helped create some of the best dramatic radio ever produced. In the fall of 1953, Liggett and Myers Tobacco was interested in sponsoring The Six Shooter, which aired on NBC and starred Jimmy Stewart. Stewart, though, was reluctant to have his name attached to a tobacco brand, so he passed. Liggett and Myers Tobacco moved on to Gunsmoke, beginning with the July 5th, 1954 episode.
Gunsmoke. Brought to you by Chesterfield, America's most popular two-way cigarette. What a pair. Chesterfield king size at the new low price. Chesterfield regular. By 1955, Gunsmoke was airing twice each week. A new episode premiered every Sunday at 6.30 p.m. with a repeat broadcast the following Saturday afternoon at 12.30. That year, these two airings drew a combined rating of 6.7, the highest on radio. And that doesn't include automobile listeners. The entire broadcasting world took notice. And unfortunately for this CBS radio crew, Gunsmoke's success led to the inevitable. Good evening. My name's Wayne. Some of you may have seen me before. I hope so. I've been kicking around Hollywood a long time. I've made a lot of pictures out here. All kinds. And some of them have been westerns. And that's what I'm here to tell you about tonight. A western. A new television show called Gunsmoke. No, I'm not in it. I wish I were, though because I think it's the best thing of its kind that's come along. I hope you'll agree with me. It's honest, it's adult, it's realistic. When I first heard about the show Gunsmoke, I knew there was only one man to play in it, James Arness. He's a young fella and maybe new to some of you, but I've worked with him and I predict he'll be a big star. So you might as well get used to him like you've had to get used to me. And now I'm proud to present my friend Jim Arness in Gunsmoke. Mr. Sandman. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 91. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we finish our adult Western trilogy with a focus on the period after television decimated radio's listening audience, forever altering the broadcasting landscape. Dramatic radio's time as America's number one entertainment genre was over, but it was far from dead. Our story won't conclude on that fabled date of September 30th, 1962, when radio drama supposedly ended forever. We'll push down the trail through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as dramatic radio continued to avoid the hangman's noose. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this show on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening theme song is Mr. Sandman, written by Pat Ballard. It was a number one record by the Cordettes in 1955. If you're on Facebook, join our Wallbreakers Facebook group to keep in touch with news like Burning Gotham, our completely original audio drama series. It will be set in 1830s New York City. It's in development, and it will debut later this year. Listen to the teaser at thewallbreakers.com. And while you're there, check out A Man Named Marlowe, the original six-part audio drama miniseries that debuted last year. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers.
When Gunsmoke went on the air in uh, April of 52, it was really the only one of its kind. In the years that followed, I think there were a good many imitators, uh, some very successful and some just poor imitations. Gunsmoke. Brought to you by L and M Filters. The success of any series has to do with the charisma that the leading character has. You can give it the best stories and the best production in the world and the best support in the world, and if the guy or the gal does not have it, it isn't going to make it. And it can get by with a minimum of all of those things if whoever it is has the lead. Causes people to say, hey, come on, let's tune in on old so-and-so tonight. By God, I sure like to see how he's going to whip all those bad guys, you know. It's charisma, that's all, and I, I can't define it. I don't know what it is, what causes it, it's a chance, job. what causes the lack of it. And a little lonely. Some people have it, some people don't, that's all. As early as 1953, there was talk of moving Gunsmoke to television. The radio show had been on the air about a year when it became apparent it was a fairly solid operation. It also was apparent in those days that television was looming large. So Meston and I talked to the radio executives about was there a way to move it to television, and indeed they'd already been thinking about this. It was in the works, so Meston and I were convinced that we'd be producing and writing the television series. McDonald told the press that the show was perfect for radio. He couldn't see how Gunsmoke could be confined to a 4 by 3 black-and-white picture. However, he was privately intrigued. They hired a novelist and a motion picture producer-director named Charles Marquis Warren to come in and get the television series organized, and I was allowed to come in as a as an associate producer, which I must admit I was very pleased to do. Then came the matter of, of course, the cast, once it had been determined to go ahead with the television version. And it seemed obvious to me that it should be Bill Conrad, Howard McNair, Parley Bear, and Georgia Ellis, because they'd created the parts, and they were indeed Matt and Doc and Kitty and Chester. But uh, I didn't know enough to know that it didn't always work that smoothly. Rex Corey, Gunsmoke's musical director, remembered that time. Most of us felt that we would make the transition normally and naturally. In fact, I was already making the transition. Uh, we were doing radio and television shows at the same time. With the particular cast of Gunsmoke, Blow was a very hurting one for those involved. Uh, it was a big disappointment. They had figured, I'm sure, that they would go ahead and work into the television aspect. The whole accent was on the television series. The musical direction for it had passed into the hands of the man who was then, Mr. Gluskin, who was then the musical director for the CBS network on the West Coast. He had gotten full control of the situation, and... Uh, I did some composition. CBS Television Brass didn't think that Bill Conrad, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, and Georgia Ellis looked the part. Conrad had a booming voice 
and achieved some film success, but he was five foot seven, and his weight had badly ballooned. It was determined to go with Jim Arness, who was a protege of Duke Wayne's and a good actor, although a newcomer, and Dennis Weaver, Amanda Blake, and Milburn Stone, all good, solid actors. Bill Warren really should get a tremendous amount of credit for transcribing or transferring the shows from radio to television. I think he was able to keep the feel and the intent of what the radio show had been. It was Bill who wardrobed the principals, and for many years they were the only well-wardrobed westerns on the air. Bill was responsible for the kind of photography and the kind of sets. I was able to be of considerable help, I hope, by being able to describe how we had pictured the sets, how we had pictured the Long Branch and the street and where the jail cells were and all the other things that we'd worked with in radio. CBS took the television production out of McDonald's hands. Charles Warren would direct. McDonald was given a producer role, and John Meston continued as the writer. Early Gunsmoke TV scripts were adaptations of already aired radio episodes. For the next six years, both shows, with their different casts, operated in separate worlds. Gunsmoke's popularity drove the TV show into the 1970s. Until recently, it was the longest-running primetime dramatic show in TV history. Now, from Hollywood, Romance. During the first week of Betsy Baker's incumbency as postmistress of Laurel Run, says Bret Hart, the sale of stamps was unprecedented in the annals of the department. Stamps were adopted as local currency and even for decorative purposes on the mirrors and the walls of cabins. With Virginia Gregg as Betsy, Jack Moyles as Johnny, and Lawrence Dopkin as Stanton, we bring you transcribed Sidney Marshall's adaptation of Bret Hart's short story classic, The Postmistress of Laurel Run. On September 4th, 1954, CBS broadcast an episode of Romance called The Postmistress of Laurel Run, using Hollywood radio regulars in the leads. I don't suppose now that any of you ever heard of Johnny Baker. Johnny Baker was foreman of the last chance mine at Laurel Run. You see, there was 40 people up here, all men. We was Johnny's boys. And he was boss, pal, and even a sort of father confessor to all of us. Anyway, a couple of years ago, Johnny was off to San Francisco on business, and some of us were sitting in the smelter shack when Johnny's best friend, Stanton Green, come in. Well, looky who's here, boys. Well, Mr. Green. Might dressed up, ain't he? That's a fact he is. Oh, you sure look pretty, Mr. Green. I yeah. <laughs> thank you, gentlemen. I reckon at least one of Johnny's boys ought to be dressed up for the occasion. Occasion? What's this occasion? Outside and see for yourself. Johnny's rig's coming up the grade right now. Johnny's back? Yeah. Well, come on, boys. Yeah. Yeah. Give him an old hoop and holler. <laughs> ah, the old son of a gun. He's coming back so soon. Yeah. Sure enough, it's Johnny, all right. 
But who's that he's bringing? Who, who, who is that he's got there? Well, I'll be... Well, I'm dreaming. Oh, no, that can't be. Oh, no, 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 I'm dreaming. I told you it was an occasion, didn't I? Howdy, boys! Howdy! <laughs> well, I see you're a little surprised. I don't rightly blame you. But don't be bashful. Step right up and meet Mrs. John Baker, my new bride. Hey, uh, yeah, yeah, your new bride. Betsy, honey, here's some of the boys I've been telling you about. This here one's Jeff Bronson. I'm delighted, Mr. Bronson. <laughs> and uh, is here Sim Martin? It's my pleasure, Mr. Martin. Simultaneously, although NBC canceled the six-shooter that June, the network wasn't ready to give up on the adult western. Two days earlier in New York, NBC launched Dr. Six-Gun. Across the rugged Indian territory rides a tall young man on a mission of mercy. His medical bag strapped on one hip, his six-shooter on the other. This is Dr. Six-Gun. Debuting on September 2nd at 8.30 p.m., it starred Carl Weber as Dr. Gray Matson. Set in the Montana Territory in the 1870s, Matson's character was reminiscent of Dylan and Ponset. The first episode in the exciting adventure series, Dr. Six-Gun. Gray Matson, M.D., was the gun-toting frontier doctor who roamed the length and breadth of the old Indian territory. Friend and physician to white man and Indian alike, a symbol of justice and mercy in the lawless west of the 1870s, this legendary figure was known to all as Dr. Sixgun. Dr. Sixgun was my friend. Me? Well, they called me Pablo. It's as good a name as any for a gypsy. <laughs> I am a peddler, and I have many things in my pack. There is not much of which I am proud, but there is one thing. I can call Doc Sixgun my friend. Huh? Hello? <laughs> <laughs> this one, this black raven, is also my friend. Hey, midnight! Huh? Hello? <laughs> well, a bird that... Doc Matson's sidekick, Pablo the Gypsy Peddler was voiced by Bill Griffiths. Pablo's trained pet, a raven named Midnight, acted as a third regular member of the cast, and William Keene played O'Shea, the proprietor of the Bull Run Saloon, where Pablo could often be found regaling tales of Doc's six-gun prowess. Except for one man. Well, we wandered into that camp one April morning, Midnight and I, to see what we could sell them. And there... Our story begins. What is it, Mr. Gold? Luke Reynolds tells me you got a sick Indian boy in your wagon. That's right. He comes stumbling into camp about 20 minutes ago. Half delirious. Said his village was sick. I'm going to move north. You don't say. Get him out. Now, wait a minute. I said get him out. Well, I happen to own this wagon, Mr. Gort. And I happen to be leader of this wagon train. We've been starving in these rocks for six months now. We can't afford sickness. Where is he? Inside. Okay, Injun, on your feet. On your feet, I said, understand? Well, he's one of them Spanish-talking mescalero Apaches. He don't savvy. Well, he'll savvy this. Oh, don't hit him, Gort. I'll hit him if it makes him move. 
Come on, now. Here, let me, let me help you, young fella. Now, easy, easy. Let me help you down. Okay, Membrano. Oh, get. Can't you see he's too weak? A couple of bullets are on his feet and he'll move. Oh, Okay, maybe you're caught, please. Out of the way. Pardon me, gentlemen. Who the devil are you? My name is Pablo, sir. I am a peddler. Get that raven away from me. Midnight, midnight, come here. He will not harm me, sir. He's a pet. Right, midnight? Did I hear him talk? Oh, midnight does many things. Watch. Midnight. Midnight on time, I said. The one curious aspect of Dr. Sixgo was the way scriptwriters George Lefferts and Ernest Canoy handled Native American dialogue. Rather than speak in a combination of pidgin English and indigenous dialect, Native spoke Shakespearean language, perhaps in an effort to make this NBC series stand out from CBS's Gunsmoke. Plot choices were expansive. Stories focused on everything from intermarriage to mistreatment of soldiers to Yom Kippur and to budding Western philanthropy. First-rate New York actors like Luis Van Ruten, Betty Gard, Wendell Holmes, John Gibson, Santos Ortega, and Virginia Payne were featured. For NBC Brass in 1954, the most important kind of radio drama was a cost-effective one. Dr. Sixgun was transcribed with pre-recorded music. The series was to be sold as a syndicated package, not just to NBC affiliates, but also to independent stations. Well, you best be going. Perhaps I will return anyway. Adios. What's the name of this doctor friend of yours? Doc Sixgun. Oh, you've heard of him? Oh, who hasn't? <laughs> Only doctor I ever know to pack six shooter on his hip. Unfortunately, hey, national sponsorship was non-existent, and NBC canceled Doctor Sixgun after the October 13th, 1955 episode. It was the last adult western series that NBC Radio attempted to produce. I've done a great many things. I was a forest ranger in the United States, or worked in, with the Forest Service for two years, digging ditches and building roads and dams and fighting fire. I worked on a sheep and cattle ranch in New Mexico, herding sheep and cattle and building fences. Uh, I was a teacher at one time. I've done just about everything you can do. I've had the opportunity of playing many roles and a great variety of roles through the years, but I've fortunately been able to drop the role at the end of the time it was being played and return to whatever life I enjoy. In 1956, public interest in advertising dollars had switched to television. Gunsmoke was an exception to the rule. Its radio success in the television era led CBS and Norman MacDonald 
to launch a second adult western. It was called Fort Laramie. Fort Laramie. Fort Laramie, starring Raymond Burr as Captain Lee Quince. Specially transcribed tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier, the saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire, and the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. Sergeant Gorse, how are you? Oh, it's sure good to see you, Captain. You look kind of funny, though. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, them clothes, mufti. I ain't used to you out of uniform. I'll be back in uniform at midnight tonight, Sergeant. We'll stay in town till then. And you can buy me a drink. Me? But I thought you was going to get rich in St. Louis. <laughs> Did I say that? Well, you talked about nothing else before your leave come through. Just proves you shouldn't believe everything you hear, Sergeant. Yes, sir. I'll try to remember that. See that you do. And to really fool you, I may go back to St. Louis. Quit the Army? A man can make money there, Sergeant. I don't mean gambling. I mean honestly. In an honest business. Buying things. Selling them. Well, sir, the Army's sure no place for a man who wants to get rich. I'll say that. The Army's no place for a man who wants to do any living at all. You're either turning black with the boredom of garrison, or you're riding hell-bent into nowhere. That's sure enough true, Captain. Well, come on, let's get our drink. How's B Company, Sergeant? Company's fine, sir. Major Daggett's going to be mighty glad to see you back at Fort Laramie. <laughs> he isn't going to see me till midnight. He'll be waiting up. Sent me into town to tell you. Oh? Something wrong? Yes, sir. Well, what? Arapahoes. They've been raiding for horses. Massacred a whole family over in the basin about ten days ago. You mean... You mean they jumped the reservation? Not the whole tribe, just a few of them, I guess. Mr. Seibert's took B Company out last week, but he didn't have any luck. Why not? I don't know, Captain. I wasn't with him. What? I've been on sick list till two days ago. Sick list? You? Yes, sir. Uh, pack mule kicked me in the belly. Oh. Well, a little whiskey will cure that, Sergeant. <laughs> well, here we are. Mr. Seibert's is feeling mighty bad about it. Your belly? <laughs> like I said, it's good to have you back, Captain. <laughs> uh, bottle of rye and two glasses. Come in, 
the arm. Hey, Moylan, look at what came in. What's his trouble? Oh. Eight soldiers, I guess. Like a lot of people. Since Richmond. Yeah, too much war, maybe. I guess everybody like to forget it now. We all like to forget it. There's a war still going on. You're right, sir. Who do they think stands between them and all the hostiles out there waiting to hack them to pieces? Who does all their dirty work for them? It isn't like people to be grateful for any favors, Sergeant. No, sir, I guess not. When I think of the troops aching for home while they sweat and freeze and spill their blood all over the frontier for 50 cents a day, it makes me mad. Tell me about St. Louis, Captain. Here's your liquor, gentlemen. Hey, you! Hold it! You know them, Sergeant? No, sir. What's your trouble, mister? My name ain't mister. It's Rudio. I ain't talking to you. I'm talking to the soldier. I'm with the soldier. You stay out of this. You know what's good for you. You tell him, Moylan. What do you want from me? I never saw you before. Yeah. You won't want to see us again after we're through with you. What's this all about? We don't like soldiers drinking where we drink, mister. We like to teach them a lesson now and then. Don't we, Moylan? Yeah, we do it, too. Now, you just shut a... up, mister. What's the matter with you? Coming in here with a soldier. Gonna drink with him, too. Rudio, I just guess that he ain't no better than no soldier himself. Just scum floating with scum. That's what I call it. Well? Okay. Sergeant Gorse? Yes, sir. You can have more than there. Thank you, sir. Move out. <laughs> Buy you that drink now, Captain Quince. You can buy the first one, Sergeant. Yes, sir. <laughs> In its January 30th, 1956 issue, Broadcast Magazine gave the series a glowing review, also noting that each episode cost $15,000 to produce. You're half an hour late, Captain Quince. I was on the post at midnight, Major. I wanted to get back into uniform before reporting. I'm glad of that, anyway. I kind of figured you would be. <laughs> you still think I'm too army, don't you, Lee? <laughs> We've known each other a long time, Major. Uh, since Vicksburg with Grant. Uh, I remember a night in Chattanooga you weren't very army. I've forgotten the girl's name, of course. <laughs> Captain Quince, I trust Sergeant Gorse told you about the Arapaho trouble. Yeah. 
They're out raiding for horses. They've slaughtered a family over in the basin. It's got to be stopped. Settlers are beginning to wonder what the 2nd Cavalry's doing at Fort Laramie. If this goes on, there won't be any settlers. Hard enough homesteading this country without a man waiting for him and his family to be massacred by renegade Indians. I'll take a patrol out in a few days, have a look around. You'll take B Company out tomorrow morning. May I make a suggestion, Major Daggett? If it's in order. Lieutenant Seibertz took B Company out and found nothing. Sure, he's green, but a few Arapaho can hide easy from a whole troop of cavalry beating its way through this country. Give me 12 men. I'll scout those Indians, get them set up. Then I'll come back for the company. No. No, it's too slow. There isn't time. Better let me try it, sir. I said no, Captain. You haven't got very far your way, Major. You have your orders. Yes, sir. Oh, Captain. Yes, sir. I heard you and Sergeant Gorse were in a brawl earlier this evening in town. Conduct unbecoming an officer. You should learn to control your temper, Captain. I wonder what family the Arapahoes are putting the knife to tonight, Major Daggett. <sighs> should never start this sort of thing with you. Take your patrol. Yes, sir. Any further orders? May have Sergeant Gorse and Lieutenant Seibertz, but no other officers or non-commissioned officers. Right. Pass your men through the main gates of the post half hour before Reveille. Any questions? No, sir. Then move out. Much of Gunsmoke's crew was involved, and the show had the same gritty realism and attention to historic detail. Fort Laramie was located on the eastern Wyoming prairie, about 100 miles from its current namesake city. Beginning in 1834, it was an important fur trade outpost, soon becoming a major stopover for those going west to Oregon. He's raising horses. A man's a fool. In 1849, the U.S. government bought the site. For the next 40 years, Fort Laramie would become a U.S. Army post. Located near the North Platte and Laramie Rivers, the area was home to the Sioux, Cheyenne, and Arapaho. It also served as a station for the Overland Stage and the Pony Express. I'm afraid I don't understand, sir. You agree too easily, Mr. Seibertz. Better learn to think for yourself. For the lead role of Captain Lee Quince, McDonald chose Raymond Burry, 39-year-old veteran of film, theater, and radio. You start in school? And in church, doing the church productions and the grammar school productions and the secondary school productions. I was always very much involved. What was your from there. first professional part? Oh, I think I played Caiaphas, the high priest, in a church production, which was professional because we were paid for all our own expenses. I had to buy my own beard. And I was 11 years old at the time. Thousand yards between men. If there's any Indians around, I want to know it. Fort Laramie took to the air with this debut entitled Playing Indian on Sunday, January 22nd, 1956, at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time, over all CBS stations.
cast as Sergeant Gorsett and Lieutenant Seibertz, or Vic Perrin and Harry Bartell. Speaking of which, Harry and I frequently were twin villains on a show. We never knew whether Harry was going to be the high-voiced villain or the low-voiced <laughs> <laughs> Whoever got the first line had his choice. Of <laughs> Looks like they slaughtered every one of them. Man. Woman. Young boy. This the whole family, Mr. Seibertz? That's all of them, sir. Thank God for that. Every one of them scalped. Even the boy. At least they... They weren't tortured. No, sir. Tell me, tell me, Mr. Seibertz, was the the other family like this? Why, well, yes, sir. I see. Made quite a mess, didn't he? Take a good look, Sergeant. How many horses did this man have, Mr. Seibertz? About ten, as I remember, sir. Hmm. Well, Sergeant? Funny thing. What is? Well, Captain, I don't know how them Arapahoes could have surprised them so fast. What makes you think they did? Not many arrows around. If a man had had a chance to put up any fight at all, there'd be a lot of arrows. Is that all? Yes, sir. You sure? Well, yes, sir. Sergeant Gorse, I excuse Mr. Seibert's because of his lack of experience. But you, you're a disgrace to the cavalry. Or to clean your sleeve and send you back to stable detail. Yes, sir. Don't stand there, Gab, and use your eyes. I'm looking. Look harder. There ain't no tracks. No tracks? Somebody dragged him out with a blanket. Somebody? Why do you say somebody, Sergeant? I don't know, sir. There's something wrong here. Look, how old's that boy, Sergeant? Twelve, thirteen. Old enough to be a brave in a couple of years if he was an Indian? Yes, sir. Don't Arapahoes usually keep a boy that age and try to make a warrior out of him? They always do. Now, wait. Them tracks, they wouldn't hide their tracks. No, they wouldn't. Captain. Yeah? Now I know why you got so mad. I'm pretty mad myself. Took you long enough. Mr. Seibertz. Yes, sir? A man wearing moccasins doesn't care about his tracks. He's got nothing to hide. Wasn't the Rappahoes did this, wasn't Indians at all. It was white men. By 1956, many of the West Coast radio actors were also doing television and film work. Each episode of Fort Laramie was rehearsed and recorded in a single evening at CBS's Studio One. Like Gunsmoke, Fort Laramie had strong female roles, realistic and sympathetic portrayals of Native Americans, and an emphasis on life's frontier struggles. Nearly all scripts were written by either John Meston, Kathleen Height, John Dunkel, or Les Crutchfield. I first came to know Les when he was still working at Caltech as an engineer. But at that time, which must have been 
46 or 47, he came in to see Bill Robeson with a script for a Columbia workshop, which Bill bought, and Les was on his way toward being a very successful writer. Les worked with me on Escape, Romance, a number of shows. And when we did start Gunsmoke, it just was obvious that Les would have to be part of the family, which indeed he was. One script, Never the Twain, was written by William N. Robeson. Lieutenant Cyberton Aho Appa, daughter of tribal chief Spotted Tail, becomes star-crossed lovers. Mighty lot younger. Nothing on my cheeks but peach fuzz. Must have been rugged in those days. Rugged? Why, son, there weren't a town or village streaks St. Joe on the Missouri and Monterey on the Pacific. Man had room to breathe. Now look at it. Immigrants pushing west every year, filling the plains with dust and damnation. I can't say I blame the Indians for being a mite put out about it. I'd expect you to look at it their way. What are you signifying by that, son? Well, I understand you've been closer to the Indians than some of us. Well, so I have, in a manner of speaking. Lived amongst them off and on for many a year. Fine people. Decent people. I saw how decent they were up on the Powder River. Man doesn't look very pretty after they've been decent to him. What part of the states you call home, son? Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Well, how'd you feel if all of a sudden a lot of people started crowding into your hometown, moving on to the streets you live in, moving right square into your house, maybe? What'd you do? Well, I, I don't know. And I know. You'd throw them out, that's what. Well, this whole prairie belongs to the Indian. Yes, sir, it's his home. And he feels about it just the same way as you do about your home. It isn't the same thing. Well, it might seem the same to an Indian. That's ridiculous. Oh, oh wait, wait, wait a minute. What is it? Indian. Where? Down there in that draw. Oh, yeah. Hey, his horse is bucking. Yeah. Look. Well, first time I ever know an Indian to get thrown off his horse. Let's go. Come on. Hey! Rattlesnake. He's going to strike. That's why her horse threw her. Well, that snake ain't going to be much use no more. <laughs> you better get a tourniquet on that leg before the poison starts moving. Well, you could use your revolver, Lanyard. Oh, sure. Uh, tell her not to be afraid. Tell her we'll take care of her. I understand you. Oh, well... Got the blood stopped. Now, I'm going to have to cut your leg so I can suck out the poison. I'll try not to hurt you. She's fainted. It's just as well. I had to make sure to get all that poison out. That Indian blood taste any different from regular blood? What are you talking about? Blood's blood. That's what I've been talking about. Help me get her over to my horse. Where are you taking her? Back to the fort. Well, you think that's smart? We can't leave her out here. She needs a doctor's care. Well, we could try to find her people's camp. And leave her with them to die of blood poisoning? She's only an Indian, son. All right, Tolliver, that's enough. Let's get our horses. It's a long ride back to the fort. Unfortunately, with no sponsorship... 
Fort Laramie lasted only 10 months before being canceled after the October 28, 1956 episode. The next year, Raymond Burr was cast as Perry Mason and moved into TV, where he'd remain a fixture for the rest of his life. Well, you see, we have a fortunate thing called television today. I made 90 motion pictures between 1946 and 1956, and they're all playing on television, so my career and those things still continue. I feel that I know enough about the law after being involved in this show for seven years to be able to recommend a good lawyer. Well, uh, Tony Ellis wrote it, directed it, produced it, everything, and I think it was one of his finest efforts. I know this, that Tony liked that show better than any show he had ever done in his life, and I think it showed, and I was very close to Tony up until the, uh, the day he died, and he would very often refer to that show as uh, with great affection. Uh, there's nothing much I can say about it except for the fact that I enjoyed doing it. It was one of those shows that... I think it was so well written that uh, it played itself. And you can't say that about too many shows, I'll tell you that. After Gunsmoke spent 1957 as CBS's only adult western, the network decided to see if expanding the genre had any advertising bite. In February of 1958, they launched two new adult western dramas. There's a town in Montana Territory where it's against the law to carry a gun. The sheriff lives by this order, but because of it, other men can die. Frontier Gentlemen. Created, written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis, the first was called Frontier Gentlemen. The show began coast to coast on the afternoon of Sunday, February 2nd, with a debut episode called The Shelton Brothers. Here with an Englishman's account of life and death in the West. As a reporter for the London Times, he writes his colorful and unusual accounts. But as a man with a gun, he lives and becomes a part of the violent years in the new territory. Now starring John Daner, this is the story of J.B. Kendall, Frontier Gentleman. John Daner starred as J.B. Kendall, a journalist writing for the London Times slowly weaving his way in and out of the Western territories during the late 19th century. Jerry Goldsmith, then a CBS staff musician, composed the haunting trumpet theme. The journey had taken 98 days from St. Louis. I had come by riverboat up to Missouri, the little sternwheeler climbing, churning, scuttling over 2,000 miles of sandbar and rapid, then into the lonely wastes of another, swifter stream, the Yellowstone, until we finally docked at South Sunday in Montana Territory. My ticket had cost $300, which left me about 50 in my pocket, and the slim hope that there would be a letter at the express office with my remittance from England. Afternoon. Just in off the boat? Right. I wonder if there's a letter for me, J.B. Kendall. Kendall, uh, mm. any trouble on the way up? 
Now, here's a Sue been kicking up her heels. Sitting bulls making big medicine again. Don't sound good. We didn't see any. And, uh, Kendall, you English, ain't you? <laughs> yes. I figured by your talk, uh, don't see many of you in these parts. Uh, oh, nothing for you, mister. You're sure? It's rather important from, from England? No, nothing. Maybe tomorrow on the overland, though. They say, are you planning to stay a while? I think so. Better get and register, then. Register? Over to Sheriff Clanton's office. There's a notice on the wall, maybe missed your attention. All strangers to South Sunday will, within one hour of arrival, register at the office of the sheriff or be prosecuted. That's Clanton's orders. Surprise you missed the signs. They're all over. Uh, thank you. Well, that's all right. Wouldn't want to see you in trouble. This ain't the healthiest town in the territory, not for strangers. Oh, uh, any particular reason? What? Oh, excuse me. Afternoon, Mr. Farley. This here's Mr. Kendall, just off the boat. I, I was telling him about registering. Now, that's a good idea. Uh, Dick Farley is one of the sheriff's deputies. Helps keep South Sunday law-abiding. Big job. What's your business, Mr. Kendall? Oh, you might call me a jack-of-all-trades. I might. I do a little writing for a London newspaper, you know. An Englishman's view of the Wild West, that sort of thing. We don't take to strangers. Oh, really? Shame. I've been looking forward to my visit. Ah, well, now you've seen it. You know what it's like. So supposing you get yourself back on that boat and try up the line to Rosebud at Junction City, huh? <laughs> I don't think so. Now, if you'll pardon me, I'll register at your office. You carrying a gun? No. Put your hands up. Over your head. Higher. Now, you hold it just like that. Just so. All right. That's your baggage? Yes. Pick it up. I beg your pardon? I said pick it up. Oh. All right, come on. Tell me, Mr. Farley, how did your town get its name? How should I know? Well, I thought you'd take an interest, just as a matter of pride, a civic pride. Mister, I don't like the way you talk or what you say, so you shut your mouth, hear? Inside. Where you been, Dake? I've been checking on this fellow, Frank. I'm just come in off the boat. He says he's a writer, a newspaper in London or something. He ain't caring nothing. I searched him. You're Sheriff Clanton? Yeah. J.B. Kendall. I understand I have to register. Yeah. A writer, huh? You want to write about South Sunday? I might. How come? As a matter of fact, the name intrigued me. You kidding? No, not at all. I write about the West, and you're in the heart of it. From what I understand, there might be trouble brewing with the Sioux and the Cheyenne. I'd like to be here if it blows up. What's the name of your paper? The London Times. You ever hear of a dake? No. Mister, all kinds come to these here parts. Now, I ain't exactly calling you a liar. It's quite all right. One can't be too careful. Uh, here, my papers. Uh, J.B. Kiffel. London Times. That's what it says. Here, you see, Dick? Yeah, that's what it says. Any other strangers get off the boat with him? No, just him. Well, you sound all right to me, Mr. Kendall. 
Uh, just you remember, I got a set of rules here. You live by them while you're here, you'll get along. That seems fair enough. No man, except them authorized by me, carries a gun in South Sunday. That way we don't get a bunch of crazy, lick-it-up miners and the like shooting up the place. It seems the usual thing for a man to be armed in most places. It ain't usual here. It's again the law. Oh, I see. You got yourself fixed up at the hotel? No, not yet. Well, and you go on over to the Empire, Mr. Candle. You tell them Frank Clanton send you. They'll take care of you. Very good of you. Take, uh, take a look at his baggage. Right. Well, you're, you're going to search my luggage? That's right, mister. There are no guns in South Sunday, not worn or hidden. That's a law. I haven't got one. I sure am glad to hear it. I like a peaceable man. Yes, sir. Yeah, a fellow like you might think of settling down here in South Sunday. The quietest little town in Montana Territory. It's an opportunity for a man. Well, I'll keep it in mind, Mr. Clanton. There ain't nothing in his bags. Well, now, Mr. Carroll, you enjoy your stay here. Anything you want, you just ask me. And uh, I'd appreciate it, sir, if you put my name in your paper. Whatever you want to say is okay with me. The J.B. stood for Jeremy Bryan. He was a remittance man, banished from England by his family, an ex-soldier of the wars in India, kicked out of the army for refusing to testify at the court-martial hearing of an officer he believed innocent. Anthony Ellis himself was an Englishman, he incorporated period slang and formed a picture of the West from the perspective of a man able to get on the inside. Then I think of an old man, a miner I met in Fort Benton. His name was Shorthorn Tom. On our journey to locate his lost mine, he gave me an insight into Western speech, which I have found to be most valuable. He was leading a bulky mule along a winding trail, and the air was rather blue with infection. <laughs> I can't really cussing, just sort of air in your lungs. Now, now you take that mule. I call him a son of a gun. Now, that ain't rightly so, because anybody can see he ain't nothing but a son of a mule. <laughs> but he's no good son of a gun, because that's the way it goes, see? Yeah, yes, I follow you. Oh, speaking of that, what exactly is son of a gun stew? Son of a gun uh. stew? <laughs> Shucks, I'll tell you. That's just about the best thing a man ever put in his inside. It's got brains and sweetbreads. Oh, gotta be a fresh-killed calf. Oh, oh, gotta be. And tongue, liver, lights, heart, kidney. Oh, I tell you, mister, that is a something. Better than pooch any day. Yes, sir, when I find this claim, I'm going to get me a new set of teeth, and I'll show you how to make son of a gun stew. So everything in it except in the hair, horns, and holler. Oh, that's a real grub. Sounds it. Uh, tell me, what is hardtail? Oh, just a mule, like this ordinary stump-sucking son of a gun. Oh, uh, hardtail, mule. You're right. Stump-sucker? <laughs> Ain't you never seen a horse getting his teeth against something and sucking wind? <laughs> that's what a stump-sucker is. No, you don't want nothing to do with a critter like that. No, sir. Hmm. I heard the expression riding herd on a woman. Oh, that's what? courting, riding herd. Courting. Oh. <laughs> Boy, you stick around old Shorthorn Tom. He'll have you talking as smart as a bunkhouse rat. You know what a woman is out in these parts? Oh, what? Calico, painted cat, sage hen, cow bunny, long-haired partner, quail, squaw. <laughs> 
You know what we call a fellow like you, green from the east? Mm. Tenderfoot, button, dude, prune picker, pilgrim, soft horn, a greener. Yes, well, what about you? Me? <laughs> a rawhide, coffee cooler, pocket hunter, river sniper. Of course, fellas, fellas call me a lot of other things, too. <laughs> it don't really matter what they call you, though. It's what you are that counts. I take you for a good This episode, partner, the only one which used multiple vignettes, was called Random Notes, and first aired on April 27th, 1958. Lord, Tom never did find his lost mine. He died up in the Highwood Mountains. I was with him. KMPC was such a part of my, my soul, my life. But I began when KMPC was a little, wonderful Spanish house in Beverly Hills. Okay, that's when it was owned by the oil company, right? No, 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 it was owned by G.A. Richards. Then that was before the oil company. W.G.A.R. Oh, no, I think the I think the oil company was before. That's where MPC came from, was Macmillan Petroleum Company. But that's right, it was a private yeah. owner in Beverly Hills. Yeah, and he also owned uh, W.G.A.R. in Detroit. And his name was G.A. Richards. Dare I ask roughly the time period? We're yeah, this was about uh, 42. And what were you doing there? You were in a newscaster? Or? No, I started out as an announcer. Then I became an actor of all things on a show called The Hermit's Cave. It was a staple. I played the hermit. He cackled a lot. Then I became a newscaster. Then I became news editor. In 1942 or 43, around there. John Daner had incredible range, able to play toothless drunks, dashing leading men, vile psychopaths, pillars of the community, and no-nonsense anti-heroes. I did every accent known to man. South Slobovian, East Yemeni, and I did it with absolute perfection. Because nobody knew what they sounded like. <laughs> Not a soul. The director, producer said, well, can you do this and that? And he said, of course I can. And you did it? And he said, beautiful. Because he didn't know what it was <laughs> supposed to sound like. And a walk. And a walk. Oh. And a trap. In the 1950s, Daner was heard all over CBS dramas. He auditioned for the lead in both Gunsmoke and Fort Laramie, but was worried about being typecast as a Western actor. This audition record with Daner as Captain Lee Quince was recorded on July 25th, 1955. Fort Laramie. Although the role went to Raymond Byrd, Daner appeared in numerous supporting Western parts, until cast by Anthony Ellis in Frontier Gentlemen. Speaking of fortunes reminds me of an extraordinary thing that happened in Montana Territory. As soon as he reached the next stage station, I'll jot it down. In a moment, we return to Frontier Gentlemen. A man sets an elaborate scheme in motion. He plans it so well that it can't be stopped. This proves ironic when the schemer is powerless to prevent the unexpected conclusion becoming literally his own victim. Hear John Lund in today's startling CBS radio drama of Suspense. Lund will play the fast-talking promoter who overplays his own hand. It's a story well calculated to keep you in 
Suspense. Today on most of these stations. And now we return you to the Anthony Ellis production of Frontier Gentlemen. The rocketing coach of the Cheyenne and Black Hills stage line had crossed into Wyoming territory. There seems no end to this incredible land of the American West. As the dark hills to the north and east fall away, the land becomes more rolling. I mention an event in Montana Territory that happened to a Chinese gentleman named Li Chao. He was a well-educated man, scrupulously honest, and ran a general supply store in Helena. During the few days of my visit, I enjoyed several cups of tea and one or two chess games with him. I remember that one afternoon, he seemed quite excited. His hands shook as he poured This is a momentous day for me, my friend, Kendall. Oh? And you are the first to know. I am now an owner of a mine. No. Yes. Here, let me show you. Ah, uh, yeah. A legal document which gives me possession of the lucky hand classic claim. Well, is it good? Good. Oh, my friend, Kendall, I have paid for it with my life savings. $40,000. You know that some men have been bringing me their gold dust to keep for them, as in a bank. Yes, I remember you telling me. It was their claim which I bought. I took much time, much trade talk, but finally they agreed to sell. And now I am a mine owner. As soon as I have made my fortune, Kendall, I shall return to China and live the remainder of my life in peace and security. Li Chao was evidently the last or next to last man in Helena to find out what had happened. I heard it three days later from the barber who was shaving me. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the biggest joke in Helena since old man Hornsby strung up that mule for kicking his wife. You mean you ain't heard? No, I really haven't. <laughs> well, well, there's a Chinese gent along the street, Lee Chow. I know him. You know he bought himself a mine? Yes, I know. <laughs> you know it's salted? Salted? <laughs> he paid 40000 for a salted mine. What the boys done was to take him a bag of gold dust every day to hold for him. Lee figures they got a whopper claim. He wants to buy in partners. No, sir, says they. Then when Lee's prime real good, the boys figures how they've done enough work and they're ready to sell out. Lee Chow buys for $40,000. The fellas take that dust and vermoose, leaving Lee Chow with a deed to a vegetable farm. That's all it's good for. Uh, hey, whoa, hold your head still, mister. I don't want to slice it. Yeah, it does he know yet? <laughs> if he don't, he's the only man in hell and a half. What about the men who sold the claim to him? Well, last I heard, they was head of the California. Ah, good morning, my friend, Mr. Kendall. Good morning, Mr. Lee. You appear downcast. Is something the matter? I've just heard some other bad news. It's about your claim. 
Oh? You've been cheated, Mr. Lee. There's no gold. The men who sold it to you knew it. So? But I do not understand. Yesterday, my boys who are work for me, they bring me a sack of dust. Oh, here. See for yourself. It is the same as I have seen before, huh? Your workers took this out of the claim. Oh, it is just as it has always been. I do not understand this talk of cheating. <laughs> Neither do I, Mr. Lee. Oh, here, my friend, Ji Ping. He's a very fine miner work for me. Morning, Ji. Good morning, Lee. Good morning, honored sir. How do you do, sir? Oh, my friend here, Mr. Kendall, he is worried about the claim. He worried? Why? Well, there is talk of assaulting the mine. He thought then is of gold. Here, from the work of yesterday. Enough more than the first day. I do not know from where you hear this bad news, my friend, Mr. Kendall. But if the rest of my life is as unfortunate, I shall indeed be a rich and happy man. Will you take a cup of tea with me? Perhaps it will... A day or so later, I left Helena and didn't return for about three weeks. Then it was only to spend an hour or so arranging for transportation to Fort Benton. I went to the store of Mr. Lee Chow and found to my surprise that it was closed. I walked to the barber shop and over a hair trimming learned what had happened during my... Lee Chow? Mister, you whisper that name around these parts. Say, ain't I seen you before? Yes, I came in for a shave a few weeks ago. Well, I never forget a face. Well, well, what about Lee Chow? Oh, he's gone. China, they say. What happened? Well, he sold that claim of his. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear it. Well, maybe you are, but there's a parcel of fellas around here who ain't. You know what that son of a gun did? What? Salted his mind. So, ain't the... that something? Everybody figuring Lee Chow an honest man, and he salts a mind. It shows you. How? I mean, I thought the claim had turned out to be good. What do you call it? A b- bonanza. That's what everybody thought. Well? You know what he was doing? Every day he had one of his coolies bringing a sack of dust. Made sure people saw it. After a while, fellas began figuring that Lee really had struck pay dirt. Couple of them went in to see Lee. He showed them a sack of dust. Yeah, well, he showed it to me. Well, sure he did. And he had one other sack. That's all he had. One he kept in the store, the other he'd give back to the coolie who'll bring it in the next day. <laughs> well, it ain't nothing to laugh at, mister. Do you know what he done? No, I haven't any idea. Well, he sold that worthless bit of ground for a hundred thousand. Yes, oh. sir, a hundred thousand. <laughs> then he skips off to China. Biggest swindle I ever seen in the territory. <laughs> Fellas who bought it found out the next day. Ain't enough dust in the claim to cover a flea. But it was too late. Veteran sound artists Tom Hanley and Bill James were by 1958 the best in the business. Kendall was the only continuing character in the series, with the exception of four episodes involving an ex-Confederate lady gambler named Belle Siddons, voiced by Janine Bates Landsworth. Badlands District. The last time I had seen it was two months earlier in Cheyenne. It was a gambling establishment belonging to a rather extraordinary woman who called herself Madame Verdi. To be exact, Lurline Monte Verdi. Owing to the fact that during the war she had been a Confederate spy, she no longer used her real name, which I knew to be Belle Siddons. It was mid-morning, a comparatively quiet hour in Deadwood as I strolled toward the tent. 
Off to one side, I saw the wagon that had been converted into a type of omnibus and which served as Miss Siddons' living quarters, complete with lace curtains and satin cushions. At that moment, the wagon door opened and she stepped down. Mr. Kendall! Well... Mr. Kendall, how nice to see you Well, I'm delighted to see you, Madame Verdi. Well, I was thinking of changing to Vestal, but it's still Verdi, Mr. Ah. Kendall. Unless we're alone, then I think I'd rather you call me Belle. (laughs) Thank you. When did you arrive in Deadwood? Last night. The tent has only just gone up. And I hope you have better luck than you had in Cheyenne. Where there's gold fever, there's more than enough business for all. I don't think the gentlemen of Deadwood will object to my presence. (laughs) When will you open? Tonight. But what about you? Really, I've never expected to see you again. What have you been doing? Oh, not much. Writing my articles, sending them to London, hoping they'll be printed. I should have thought you'd have joined the gold hunt in the Black Hills. <laughs> no, no, I'm afraid I've never make a successful prospector. Oh, what a strange man you are. Will you come with me to the tent? Yes, of course. I want to make sure the tables are ready for tonight. And perhaps you'll take me to breakfast. All production costs for Frontier Gentlemen were nationally sustained by CBS. These are some of the things which I've seen, heard during my travels. I find myself despondent at the thought of leaving this country and its people, yet my sadness is tempered with the realization that perhaps someday I shall come back to the great American West, which for the past several months has been my home. Frontier Gentlemen was written, produced, and directed by Anthony Ellis and stars John Daner as J.B. Kendall. Featured in the cast were Ben Wright, Virginia Gregg, Lawrence Dobkin, Joseph Kearns, Vic Perrin, Jack Crucian, Jack Moyles, and Harry Bartell. Bud Sewell speaking. CBS Caution Before Speed. This is the CBS Radio Network. In November, the network announced it was dropping Nora Drake, Our Gal Sunday, Backstage Wife, the FBI in Peace and War, The Galen Drake Show, and Frontier Gentlemen. In a move unusual for the time, CBS decided to import another Western that had already had success on television. The 41st and final episode was a rebroadcast of Random Notes. Today, all episodes exist in good-to-great listening quality, thanks to transcription. Anthony Ellis passed away in 1967 from cancer at the age of 47. Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? Smells like gazpacho? A gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. 
Whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother, that villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow! The second show CBS premiered in February of 1958. Debuted on Sunday the 23rd at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. It was called Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Slaughter's my name. Luke Slaughter. Cattle's my business. It's a tough business. It's a big business. I got a big stake in it. And there's no man west of the Rio Grande big enough to take it from me. Slaughter of Tombstone. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, Civil War cavalryman turned Arizona cattleman. Across the territory from Yuma to Fort Defiance, from Flagstaff to the Huachucas, and below the border through Chihuahua and Sonora, his name was respected or feared, depending on which side of the law you were on. Man of vision. Man of legend, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. It was a long, hot ride to Laredo. The last day I pushed it hard, eating dust all the way. I didn't know if I'd be in time or not. When I rode up to the cantina in town and went inside, I saw I was. Barely in time. The two of them were sitting at a corner table... From the sound of it, the deal was just about closed. Me and my boys will bring that herd up across the border for you in good shape. Hell, I hope so, Hancock. The association's pretty worried about all the trouble we've had on these drives before. Excuse me, gents. You Ben Wilkins? Why, yes. President of the Cattlemen's Association? Yes, that's right. I don't think I know you. Look, mister, we're talking business. That's why I'm here, Hancock. How come you know my name? Wilkins, I understand you're aiming to bring a herd of cattle up from Mexico into Texas. What's that to you? You're missing a good bet. Why don't you drive them west, to Arizona? Arizona? That's right. Haven't you heard about the new mines opening up around Tombstone? Everybody and his brother's headed out there, and they all gotta eat. That means a good market for beef. A lot better price than you get around here. He's crazy, Wilkins. That's too far to drive a herd. Hell, it's sure too dangerous anyway. Why, there's banditos, rustlers, even Indians, maybe. I took a herd out there last month, but it wasn't near enough to take care of all those beef-eating miners. I'll drive your herd out there for you, for a percentage. Now, you just shut that big mouth of yours, mister, whoever you are. I'm the one drives Wilkins' herds, wherever they go. Oh. Wilkins, you can't afford Jess Hancock anymore. No, what do you mean? The last herd he brought across the border for you. How many did he, uh... Lose along the way. Why, 43 head. 
Could have happened to anyone. Banditos, that's what it was. Mexican bandits, huh? Here's a bill of sale. Might interest you, Wilkins. Seems last week a rancher named Hollister bought 43 head in good faith. Paid for him proper. Man who sold him was Jess Hancock. What? That's a lie. Take a look, Wilkins. That Hancock signature. What? It sure is. Nobody's gonna accuse me of wrestling. Don't try it, Hancock. I can kick that gun out of your hand before you get it loose from their holster. You just try it, man. You convinced, Hancock. Who are you, mister? Slaughter. Luke Slaughter. Slaughter? Oh, I've heard of you, Mr. Slaughter, but I didn't know you was in these parts. You don't have to mister me, Wilkins. Just Slaughter's good enough. Hancock, the association's going to hear about this. If those are the same 43... You got no proof. We'll see about that. Slaughter, you said Arizona, huh? A lot of hungry miners in Tombstone. Bigger price, huh? Half again as much. Meet me back here in an hour. You got yourself a job. I'll be here, Wilkins. Uh, you hear me, Slaughter. I don't care what your reputation is. You ain't gonna beat me out of this. I'll stop you. Here I am, Hancock. And now's as good a time as any. Go ahead. Yeah, you can talk mighty tall with my gun laying there on the floor. Oh, yeah. Your gun. There it is, Hancock. And I'm just as far from that table it's sitting on as you are. Now go ahead. There's, uh... There's other ways, Slaughter. There's other ways. Now, look, Slaughter, when you signed for this job, you guaranteed me six good trail hands. Well, I didn't know you were just going to pick them cold out of the bar here. That's the difference, Wilkins. They're not good hands now. They will be by the time we get to Tombstone. I'll see to that. Yeah, I guess you will. How many you got so far? Two Mexican boys who know the country pretty well, and a cook. Still leaves you three shy. I'll get them. Say, mister, your name's Slaughter? Yeah, Mine's Rusty. I hear you're looking for trail hands. Maybe. You ever been to Tombstone? Not with a herd. Didn't know anybody had. This will be the second. I've been almost every place else you can take a herd, I guess. Dodge City, Cheyenne, the Panhandle, you name it. All right, I'll take you. Uh, you the one that's hiring, mister? That's right. You look a little old for the drive I've got in mind. Tombstone's a long way. Don't worry about that, none. I'll keep up. What's your name? They call me Wichita. All right, Wichita, you're on. Got room for one more, Slaughter? Who are you, son? Name's Carson. Jim Carson. You ever ridden trail before? No, but I don't figure it'd be too tough. Besides, Slaughter, I come in handy when there's trouble. Oh? How about when there's work? I'll work. I need the money. I want to buy me a gun. You already got a gun. I want to get me another one. All right, I'll put you on. You say your name was Jimmy? It's not Jimmy, it's Jim. I don't like being called Jimmy. Go get your stuff together, Jimmy. I guess you didn't hear me, Slaughter. I said I don't like being you called You want to come along or don't you? I want to come. 
Then get moving, Jimmy. I don't like that one, Slaughter. He's on the prod. Good day, Wilkins. I take a chance with him, then. I don't want any trouble with this herd. Now, just a minute, Wilkins. I didn't guarantee no trouble. Matter of fact, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. I guarantee just one thing to bring that herd through. That you can count on. I've seen young punks like him before, Slaughter. They go around with a chip on their shoulder trying to show how tough they are. He probably heard about you. What about me, Wichita? Well, no offense. You've got a kind of reputation, that's all. Punk like that, sooner or later, you'll probably want to find out how tough you are. (laughs) Maybe. I heard him shooting off his mouth at the bar earlier about how he'd gunned down a couple of men here and there. Oh, I bet he's awful green on the trail, though. You can show him the ropes, Rusty. Maybe the trail will take some of the toughness out of him. Anyway, I need what men we can get. He goes with us. You're the boss. Where are we heading from here? Delgada. Little town below the border. That's where we pick up the herd. When are we leaving? As soon as we saddle up. Tonight? Yeah. We should be able to hit the trail with the cattle tomorrow afternoon. Make a few miles toward Tombstone before dark. What's the hurry? There's a man named Jess Hancock wouldn't mind making a little trouble for me. I want that herd all in one piece. To start with, anyway. Sam Buffington starred in the title role, with a vocal quality in line with Conrad's Marshall Dillon and Burr's Captain Lee Quince. He was only 26 and a relative stranger to American audiences. Born on October 12, 1931, he found Hollywood Western work in television, for network shows like Tales of Wells Fargo, Maverick, and Cheyenne. Buffington was balding and husky with a big mustache. He had the physicality of a man much older than his age. It lent itself well to portraying an Arizona cavalryman turned cattleman. Rusty, how about the cook? Oh, he's got all the grub loaded in the chuck wagon, ready to roll. Good. Senor? Senor? What? You're Slaughter? Yeah, who are you? I'm Carlota. You are going to Arizona? Yeah, Tombstone. Why? Take me with you. What? In this debut episode called Tracks Out of Tombstone, Slaughter is in Laredo, Texas to convince a rancher that his cattle should be driven to Arizona. Slaughter declares himself the man to do it. How come you're down here? This is my stamping ground, Slaughter. Or was. I ain't forgot. I didn't figure you had. First you take my job, now you try to take my girl. Just a minute, Hancock. Don't get the episode features Junius Matthews as Wichita, Lillian Bayef as Carlotta, Sam Edwards as Jim, Vic Perrin as Rusty, and Herb Vigran as Jess Hancock. I better have. Getting pretty dark, Slaughter. Don't you reckon we'd better get that herd better down for the night? A little further. You've been avoiding the regular trail. Expecting trouble? I usually do, Wichita. I've been watching you around horses, Slaughter. Been thinking you was in the cavalry. Oh? I heard about a man named Slaughter once. Commanded a regiment from Illinois in the war. Yeah? Raiders, they was. Used to raid across the line. This slaughter I heard about, he always used to come back leading a string of Confederate horses with their saddles empty. I've been thinking you're the same slaughter. And I've been thinking you're a pretty nosy old man. (laughs) Yep, that's me. (laughs) Well, this is far enough. Rusty, go bed down here. Right. 
Wichita, that chuck wagon of ours. I just saw the tarp move. There's somebody inside. Yeah, I saw it too. All right, Carlotta. Get out of there. Please, senor, I want to go to Tombstone. You picked the wrong way. But you don't send him back now. It's night. It's wild country. You wouldn't do that, would you? You counted on that, didn't you? All right, you'll go with us. Gracias. But you'll earn your way. You'll help the cook. You'll clean up after him. You'll wash the dishes. Work me like a horse, huh? Or worse. Maybe you like the horses better. There's one big difference. I invited the horses. After we bedded down the herd, the cook wrestled up some grub. Carlotta was plenty sullen, but she worked. Jimmy kept eyeing her, so I figured I'd better put him on night herd. I turned in around midnight. Everything was peaceful. But it didn't stay that way very long. Slaughter! You hear that? Yeah. Where'd they come from? Well, I don't know. But it's got the herd riled up. There they go! They're stampeding, Slaughter! They're stampeding! In a moment, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone returns. Somebody ought to set Jack Benny straight about how to make a movie because he's at it again. The series was produced and directed by William N. Robeson, which stuck by radio from its earliest days to its waning moments in the late 1950s. In 1958, Robeson was also producing and directing Suspense, but Hollywood had become a radio ghost town. Suspense was a very, very important show. I must say that I was not the director of Suspense in its heyday. Bill Spear was. And Bill Spear uh, did not create suspense, but made it the great show that it was. I came along at a time when radio was paring down all of the uh, adjuncts to great production in terms of money for stars, uh, money for cast, money for orchestra, etc., etc. And uh, to give you an example of how grim it was out in 1959, they removed suspense from the West Coast to New York for production in New York in order to save $80 in sound effects technicians. And now, Act Two of William N. Robeson's production of Luke Slaughter of Tombstone. Wichita. Yeah. I thought I'd seen everything, Slaughter. But I guess I was wrong. What do you mean? Well, riding into that herd the way you did. You know a better way to turn them? You could have been run down, killed. Maybe. Jimmy, come out over here. Look, look, Slaughter, up on the ridge. Small fire. Could be Indians. We'll go up and take a look in a minute. What do you want, Slaughter? 
Those two shots that started the stampede. Sounded like they came from over near where you were. You fire those shots, Jimmy? I said, did you fire those shots? Yeah. Why? Why? Thought I saw something moving in the dark near me. Figured it could be trouble. So you just hauled up and blasted away, huh? Pretty spooky with that six-gun of yours, aren't you? I tell you, I thought someone was coming at me. You almost cost us the whole herd. You want two of those guns, but one's too much for you. I'm taking your six-gun, Jimmy. No, you ain't, Slaughter. I'll leave you your rifle in case you run into trouble on the way to Tombstone. But I can't take any more chances on that itchy trigger finger of yours. I'll hand it over. Ain't nobody gonna take my gun away from me. I'll... I'll draw on you before I let you... No, you won't. I'd... Maybe you ain't heard about them two men I gunned, Slaughter. Yeah, you were shooting off your mouth about it in the saloon, but I don't believe it, Jimmy. You never gunned a man. And you're not gonna start now. Now hand it over. But first... I did... Let's have it. All right. Now get back to the herd. Yeah, you've taken a lot away from that kid, Slaughter. First calling him Jimmy, and now taking his gun. I had no choice. Uh, even so, you cut him up, and he won't forget it. You're trying to be my conscience or something, Wichita. Oh, like you say, I'm just a nosy old man. <laughs> <laughs> then let's go nose around that fire up on the ridge. Tom Hanley had expanded his abilities to include script writing. On Slaughter, he doubled as editorial supervisor while laying sound patterns with Ray Kemper and Bill James. I'm Irma Dutro, color stylist for O'Brien Paints. Our musical theme hardly needs introduction. Just as the many instruments blend into this... Although CBS ad sales managed to get the May 4th, 1958 episode sponsored by O'Brien Paints, finding regular sponsorship for a Sunday at 2 p.m. Western with little name value was impossible. After consulting many leading decorators and home furnishings experts of the country. And because of CBS canceled the show after just 16 episodes. Yeah, I guess you're right. The last, Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, aired on June 15th. I don't like. What's that? They left in such a hurry, I didn't get to kiss the bride. Luke Slaughter of Tombstone, starring Sam Buffington, was written and directed by William N. Robeson. Supporting Mr. Buffington were Norma Jean Nielsen, Junius Matthews, Norm Alden, Barney Phillips, Ben Wright, and Charles Seal. Although this would be Sam Buffington's only radio series, he had roles in over 40 TV shows during his brief Hollywood career. And he starred alongside Audie Murphy in NBC TV's Whispering Smith. But halfway through the production run, on May 15, 1960, Sam Buffington took his own life. He was just 28 years old.
my career as an actor uh, has been spotty. I started out in New York in 1935. I starved my way through the Depression in New York as an actor. I came out to California in 1940, January. Went to work at Disney as mm -hmm. an artist. And I was an assistant animator on Bambi. And then I, I, I went into the Army, got out of the Army, was hired by KMPC. I went into radio, you see, because I didn't want to go back and be an artist. I hated that idea. I drifted, just drifted back into acting. Every radio personality or person or who had been an actor or who was an actor in radio all wanted to be actors in motion pictures. I became an actor in motion pictures. I drifted into that business. At the same time, I drifted back into radio acting. And that's where Hagman Will Travel came about. The only Western series of note to begin on television and then transition to radio was Have Gun Will Travel. On TV, Richard Boone starred as Paladin, a gun for hire. It proved popular enough that CBS decided to drop Frontier Gentlemen in favor of a radio version of this series in an attempt to attract sponsorship. The idea worked. An immigrant worker is crushed beneath thousands of pounds of railroad ties. You call it an accident. I say it was murder. Have Gun, Will Travel. Starring Mr. John Daner as Paladin. San Francisco, 1875. The Carlton Hotel, headquarters of a man called Paladin. Paladin, glad to have you back. Thank you. My key, please. Of course. It's been quite a while since we've seen you. About uh, three weeks, I dare say. About that. And my mail, please. Of course. I don't believe I remember you being away for this long at any one time. He was, sir. It must have been quite an extensive trip. Yes, it was. Would you have Hey Boy bring my bags up? Oh, uh, uh, Hey Boy is no longer with us, but I'll see... Hey Boy you. is no longer here. Uh, that's right. His employment terminated, um, well, a week ago today, as a matter of fact. Terminated? Why? I don't know, sir. Did he get another job somewhere? I don't really know. Well, he must have given an excuse for leaving. The Carlton automatically gave him a release when he didn't show up for three consecutive days. Did it ever occur to the Carlton that he might be ill? Well, after all, it isn't our responsibility. Has anyone seen him? Really, Mr. Paladin, it isn't that important. These people are very easily replaced. I assure you the Carlton will continue to give you the same excellent service that we've all... I've just had an example of your excellent service. Even if you've had embarrassing dandruff for years, you can get... When CBS took Gunsmoke to TV, 
Norman MacDonald wanted to be heavily involved with the production. But when network execs chose a totally new roster of people, MacDonald was incensed. To help ease his disappointment, CBS Brass gave him the radio version of Have Gun, Will Travel. MacDonald wanted to prove he could make the radio version better than the TV. On November 8, 1958, one week before the final episode of Frontier Gentlemen, McDonald conducted three voice tests for the lead. Harry Bartell, Vic Perrin, and John Daner read lines from the opening script, Strange Vendetta. Daner was chosen. On November 23rd, exactly one week after J.B. Kendall vanished from the air, Half Gun premiered. Hey Boy didn't leave a message for me with anyone at the hotel. And it was unlikely that he would quit his job without an explanation, unless something was wrong. I didn't know where Hayboy lived, but I remembered that he had an uncle who ran a curio shop I had patronized in the past. San Francisco was heavy with fog when I arrived in Chinatown for a visit with Mr. Chung, the owner of Mandarin Galleries. Welcome to the Mandarin. Good afternoon, Mr. Chung. Ah, uh, Mr. Paladin, I did not recognize you at first. I trust each dawn has brought you a day of success. And each dusk, a night of contentment. Your visit is most fortuitous. Only yesterday, I received several new pieces from Canton. I am sure they will be of great interest to you. Oh, beautiful workmanship. The case is teakwood, isn't it? Yes, and the chessmen are of ivory. Oh. Exquisite. Exquisite. But right now, Mr. Chung, I'm afraid all I want is some information. I hope I may be of service. I'm looking for Hay Boy, um, Kim Chang. I have not seen my nephew, Kim Chang, for several days. Mr. Chung, Hay Boy is a friend of mine. Is he in any kind of trouble? He spoke to you, perhaps, of his brother, Kim Sung. Yes, he did mention that his brother was coming to the United States. His passage and entry permit was arranged by a railroad company. And I suppose Kim Sung signed a contract to repay the railroad by working for them on a construction crew. Many of our people have come here this way. Uh -huh. Mr. Paladin, I have in my pocket two letters. Kim Chang, whom you call Hey Boy, left them with me for safekeeping. The first one is from his brother. If you would like... I will translate it for you. Yes, please. The first part is of no importance. But this. The headman, Travis, cheats us of our wages. Gives us less food than is our right. Because we are Chinese, he thinks we will do nothing. Last night, when I spoke to him in protest, I was beaten. I am afraid now to stay here. I am afraid... Travis will kill me as a lesson to the others. Please, my brother, you must help me. That is all. May I see the letter? It is in Chinese. No, I just want to see the postmark. Coldwater, Utah. Is this where Hay Boy's gone? He left ten days ago when he received this other letter from the railroad company. You may read it for yourself. Under the circumstances, Mr. Paladin, 
I am surprised the letter would include regrets. Ah, uh, uh, signed, Maury Travis, section superintendent. He doesn't explain the accident or even tell where Kim Sung is buried. Why did Hey Boy go to cold water alone, Mr. Chung? When it is hurt, even the most gentle kitten will have the fury of a tiger. But still only the strength of the kitten. May I keep these letters for a while? There is something you can do to help him, Mr. Paladin. I can try to keep Hey Boy alive, Mr. Chung. Four days' ride from San Francisco brought me to a tiny settlement on a huge plateau, shadowed by a crouching mountain peak. The railroad superintendent's office, Coldwater Division, was a small frame shack with a porch some three steps above a dirt road. Looking for somebody? Mr. Travis. You found him. Come on in. Oh. Getting chilly, ain't it? <laughs> it is. Always does this time of the afternoon. What can I do for you? My card. Uh, have gun, will travel, wire, paladin, San Francisco. What's all that mean? I don't understand. You're a target, Mr. Travis. Oh? Someone intends to kill you. I'm offering my services as a bodyguard. Why would anyone want to kill me? We all have enemies, some we're not aware of. I'm sure you're no exception. Well? You remember a Chinese boy by the name of Kim Sung who was killed in an accident here not long ago? Yeah, yeah, I remember. I have a letter here that claims it was not an accident. Well, let me see that. Ah, this could be a Chinese laundry ticket for all I know. I assure you it is not. I'll take that back if you don't mind. Oh, well, sure. Sure. Now, this letter was sent to the dead man's brother and claims that it was not an accident. Now the brother wants revenge. His brother? Kim Chang, a little fella? That's right. Well, I got news for you, Paladin. I don't need to hire a gun to protect me against a coolie. I've already met up with that little China boy, and I'm still alive and kicking. And the China boy? He's in jail. A crazy fool came at me with a knife. If the sheriff hadn't stuck his nose in, he'd be in his grave. I'm sorry I bothered you, Mr. Travis. The original idea was to repurpose the television scripts. Of the first 39 episodes, 35 were adaptations of television dramas. Somebody somewhere in the business said, wouldn't it be dandy if we had a radio series to run concurrently with the TV series? The point of it was that we were going to use scripts that originated with the TV show. Uh, Dick Boone's show. Right. We were going to use their same scripts and just adapt them to radio, but it didn't work. Can you remember any of the people involved in putting the shows together? Producers, directors? Norman MacDonald. And he also did Gunsmoke. He did Gunsmoke. Oh, okay. yes, absolutely. Yeah. Tony Ellis, Frank Paris. After the 36th episode, Norman MacDonald got frustrated with the format and left the series. Assistant Frank Paris took over. Beginning with episode 40, all new scripts were written specifically for a radio. Having been committed to a radio have gun, we finally discarded all of the TV scripts that we thought would be very handy to transpose into radio. 
we wound up writing original radio Habgunwell Travels. ...where a hay boy was lying on a mattress on the floor, apparently asleep. The sheriff said he was weak because he refused to eat and that he had gotten the bruises on his face and arms in the fight with Travis. At my request, he left me alone with Hayboy. All right, Paladin, but I'll have to lock you in. All right. Hayboy. Where are my cigars? Huh? My newspapers. Oh. Oh, Mr. Paladin. <laughs> Hello, Hayboy. Ah, Mr. Paladin it is much surprised to see you here. Yeah, they're a long way from San Francisco. Oh, yes, uh, many miles of sorrow. I know. Uh, Mr. Chung told me about your brother. We were to be together again after all these years. Now my brother is dead and the man who killed him lives and goes unpunished. This is not right. Keep your voice down. We don't know who can hear us. Uh, yes, sir. Now, hey, boy. Are you sure that it was not an accident? Oh, yes, sir, I'm sure. Travis struck my brother with a club, and then he made it appear an accident. He threw a load of timbers off a flat car onto his body, and two of the men who worked with Kim Sung saw it happen. Why didn't they tell the sheriff? With two witnesses, Travis could be brought to trial. Oh, who would take the word of Chinese against a white? Somehow, his punishment will come at my hands. No, it won't work. Even if he doesn't kill you, if you should kill him, you'd be arrested for murder. Why, either way, it's something I must do. Ah, uh, Mr. Paladin, you come to take me out of jail? Uh, I'm afraid I can't do that until we clear the charges against you. Hmm. Hey, boy, tell me the names of the two men who witnessed your brother's murder. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I took oath to never repeat their names. It is for their protection. Please understand, I cannot break my pledge, not even to you. Yeah, I understand, hey, boy. But I will tell you, they work in a crew under a man named Brady. Yeah, I saw Brady this afternoon. Oh, yes, he a mean, very strong. He like a bull. He helped Travis throw the railroad ties on my brother's body. Hmm. Hey, boy, I'm going to tell the sheriff to fix you some supper, and you eat it. Oh, he saw me, Sir Paladin. I eat it. Good. I'll be back to see you in the morning. Paladin never had a sidekick. The only two recurring characters were Hayboy, voiced by Ben Wright, and Missy Wong, voiced by Virginia Gregg. Could I do Hayboy, Missy Wong, on that? Yeah. 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 Honey, all I can do is old women now. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I get cards and letters from Ben Wright, always addressed to Missy Wong. Signed, Adolf. Hey, boy. Two of you saw what really happened to him. Two of you know his death was not an accident. Two of you can put Maury Travis in jail. Well... this the stuff you eat? Seems you like slop. It seems you don't mind living in filth like slaves. You'll watch one of your brothers die and then lick the boots of the man who killed him. No. Ah, so. Someone does understand. All right, you little monkeys. On your feet. Kind of. Who are you? 
What are you doing here? Talking to some of my friends. Your friends? Clear out. Not until I'm ready. I said get out of here. Put that axe down. I'll go when I'm ready. Now I said... You're good with that axe. But not good enough. I don't know who you are, but I'm going to tear your head off. Now, if any of you men have anything to say, speak up now. I want to help you. Which of you spoke up before Brady came in? All right. If you change your mind, I'll be with Travis. Why is it that they can't stay married in Hollywood? Now, Although Hey Boy and Paladin sometimes reflected the dated social interactions of the late 19th century, their mutual affection was evident in scripts like this episode, Hey Boy's Revenge, broadcast on March 1st, 1959. Don't miss the feature entitled The Disgrace of Hollywood in March McCall. By 1960, Have Gun and Gunsmoke were the last two dramatic productions being recorded for CBS in Hollywood. Network radio drama was on its last leg. No, everything sort of just dissolved, just vanished. There was no way that I could have continued on because radio was killed by the business. CBS killed its own child. NBC killed its own child. They all said, we're not going to have radio drama anymore because it is not paying off. So, in a very conscious way, all radio shows were canceled. They went or, to music, they went to talk shows, or whatever it was, yeah. Talk shows? A pox on those. Have Gun Will Travel's final episode, aired on November 27, 1960. Entitled, From Here to Boston, it is regarded as a landmark. Yes? Whoa, uh, excuse me. Uh, you finished with breakfast, hey boy, we'll take Dishi away. Oh, yes, we are. Come in. Uh... Did you meet my sister? No, sir. Hey, boy, isn't it? Yes, sir. This is my sister, Lavinia Todd Hunter. Oh, uh, hello. How do you do? Uh, was you wrong comfortable last night, Missy Todd Hunter? I was so exhausted from the trip, I hardly noticed. But uh, I do think I'll like the accommodations of the Carlton. I never thought we'd be able to get a, a suite with two bedrooms. It's almost like home. Oh, yes, Missy. Uh, Carlton is a very nice hotel. But it doesn't compare with anything we have in Boston, Lavinia. Oh, of course not, Miles. But I, I'm so surprised they have anything at all in this godforsaken country that I'm overwhelmed. Uh, hey, boy. Uh, Esau. Do you know most of the regular guests who stay here? Oh, Esau, hey, boy, know many guests. Uh, tell me, do you know a Mr. Paladin? Mr. Oh, Esau. How long has he been living here? Oh, many long time. Could you tell us about him, hey boy? Oh, yes, ma'am. 
What does he do? Uh, what does he look like? Is he married? Oh, no, ma'am. No, he's a paladin, not married. <laughs> My sister and I have heard that he uh, uh, hires his gun, so to speak. Well, Misa Paladin will be happy to tell you what he does. He's a very good friend of Hey Boy. Uh, you like to meet him? No, no, no. We were just curious. We've heard so much about him. Uh, Isa, would there be anything else? No, that'll be all for now. Thank you very much, Hey Boy. Isa. Miles, why don't you want to meet him? Not just yet, Lavinia. We have to go about this very carefully. Well, we don't have all the time in the world, Miles. I know, I know. But even so, you must have patience. Don't forget that lawyer back in Boston is looking for him. And if we're too patient, he may locate him before we finish what we came out here to do. You don't have to remind me. Just let me do the planning. Uh, all right. Then where do we start, my dear brother? This hay boy said Mr. Paladin was unmarried. More than likely, he would be interested in meeting a beautiful young lady from Boston. Oh, why, thank you, Miles. And then what? Uh, you could entrance him, my dear. Get to know him intimately. Oh. And as soon as we know his weak points and when the time is right, we'll complete our mission. I didn't realize I was going to play such a, an important role. You don't object, do you? Of course not. <laughs> For a hundred thousand dollars, how could I? And besides, he, um, he may be very enjoyable company. While he's still alive. Paladin receives an attorney letter, notifying him of a large inheritance. He must travel to Boston to claim it. Meanwhile, he has no idea that his latest romantic interest, Lovina Todd Hunter and her brother, were responsible for his aunt's death, and they plan to murder him as well. Your brother was very thoughtful, Lovina. This is my favorite brandy. Yes. Y yes, he, he wanted to show his appreciation for all your kindnesses to us. Oh. Uh, this is my second glass, and you've, uh, you've hardly touched yours. Oh, I know. I, I like the aroma more than the taste. Drink up. It warms the blood. <laughs> well, I, I, I feel a little too warm as it is. <laughs> yes, you do seem uncomfortable. Is something wrong? Oh, no. Oh. No, I, I, I guess it's just the hour. Oh. It's getting rather late. We've had a busy day. Yes. Now, I wonder who that could be. Excuse me. Miles. Oh, uh, Paladin, I... Come I, in. Well, I... I just came by to see if Lavinia was still here. She is? Come in, come in. You see, it was getting so late that I... I, I thought... didn't realize what time it was, Miles. Oh, she's a big girl, Miles. You don't have to worry about your sister. Well, I wasn't exactly... Oh, I must thank you for the brandy, Miles. Uh, won't you join us and have a glass? No, no, but... Thank you, Nonsense. Sit down. Really, Paladin, I didn't mean to intrude like this. You can stop babbling now, Miles. Get your hands up, Paladin. What? No, Lavinia, don't shoot him. It'll make too much noise. I said get your hands up, Paladin. All right. 
It is quite a surprise, Lavinia. I didn't know you carried a derringer in your purse. Oh, shut up and keep quiet. Well, Miles, your brandy didn't work. What do we do now? Give me a chance to think. What happened with the brandy? You probably forgot to put the poison in it. Poison? Yes, Paladin. You should have been dead an hour ago. Oh? Well, I, uh... I must have opened the wrong bottle. Uh, the wrong yes. bottle? Yes. Mm-hmm. Hey, boy, brought me a bottle a couple of hours before yours arrived. They were identical. Well, Miles, that's something you didn't think of. Why don't I just shoot him and be done with him? No. No, we'll be caught before we can get out of here. Yes, the shot would wake the hotel, Luvinia. I'd be willing to take the chance. Now, there's no reason why we can't go through with our original plan. Where's the other bottle? Well, look in his liquor cabinet. <laughs> you really wouldn't expect me to drink the brandy now, Lavinia. If you don't, then I'll be forced to shoot you. Either way, I lose, huh? Either way. Then I think I prefer being shot. Stop! Give me the gun. Miles! Miles, help me! Give it to me. Oh! Right, now, take the gun. Miles! You... You shot me. Miles! He's dead. tell you how much I appreciate you coming all the way over here to Oakland with me. Oh, not often you go on such plenty long trip, Mr. Paladin. Oh. Too bad Missy Wong couldn't get off work and come with us to say goodbye. Yes, she wanted to. Well, maybe it's better she not come. She'll be crying big tears on her boy's shoulder all the way back to the hotel. <laughs> oh, here you are, Mr. Paladin, right on the spot. Thank you, driver. Uh, here you are. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, you need help with those bags? No, hey, boy, and I can handle them. Uh, you will wait for him, won't you? Oh, yes, sir. And see that he gets back to the Carlton. Hey, you count on me, Mr. Pallet. Good. Oh, here. Hey, boy, I'll carry the big one. Oh, please, sir. All right. Let's go. Ah, uh, we want car 14, hey, boy. Well, we, we better hurry, Mr. Paladin. That's all right. Yeah, that's my car right over there. Oh, well, what we do with these bags? I put them in the vestibule. The conductor will take care of them for me. Here we are. He's up to go. There we are. That's it. Now, remember, hey, boy, the other trunks are ready to ship. I'll write you and let you know where to send them. Mr. Paladin, when will you come back? I don't know, hey, boy. All depends on how long it takes me to liquidate my aunt's estate. Several months at least. Then you never know. I may take a liking to Boston and settle down there permanently. It won't be the same Carlton Hotel while you're gone. Oh, now. I've left many times before, hey, boy. We saw about this time you will not come back, maybe. You never can be sure. Just don't forget me. Keep looking for me. 
I may be back. So I hope so. Oh, and don't forget to send me the San Francisco papers. I want to be sure and follow Miss Todd Hunter's trial. Oh, what do you think they do with her? Send her to jail for a few years. Well, you better go, Miss Abadie. Yes. Now, um, hey, boy, look, if, if you and Miss Wong decide to get married... Give me plenty of notice. I will be back for that. Oh, uh, 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 we we like you. I'll uh, let you know. All right. Well, goodbye, hey boy. Goodbye, Miss Paladin. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye, Miss Paladin. Will Travel. Created by Herb Meadow and Sam Rolfe, is produced and directed in Hollywood by Frank Paris and stars John Daner as Paladin with Ben Wright as Hayboy and Virginia Gregg as Miss Wong. Tonight's story was specially written for Have Gun, Will Travel by Mr. Paris. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Bartlett Robinson, John James, and Lynn Allen. Tonight, CBS Radio brings to a close this current series of programs. This is Hugh Douglas extending best wishes to you from the cast and crew of Have Gun, Will Travel. The program closed with no mention in the trade columns. Say, Jake, how much further we got to go? I'm about wasted away to nothing with hunger. Howdy, Sheriff. Wait, Jake, that... some blood on the bench, Mr. Sutcliffe. Blood. I know in my heart that he's innocent, and that someone is framing him for murder in these payroll robberies. It's Western audio drama at its finest. I got word from my contact at the bank in Prickly Pear that the payroll's going to be released Thursday. Slim Sutcliffe, he's the owner of the D-Bar-D, will have at least three men on that job. Return with us to Pioneer Days in the wild and woolly Arizona Territory. The story of a man whose mission was to tame the Old West. Jake Dimes, Range Detective. Subscribe to Narada Radio Company at iTunes and all fine podcast providers. We're just about to... Jake, the sun's going down. Are you going to kiss her or ain't you? Huh? It seems to me that in the old days of radio, and I'm going back again to the 40s and 50s, the executives, whether men like Guy Della Chapa or Harry Ackerman or whomever, were men with an experience in and a feeling for the theatrical end of the business as opposed to the business end of radio. Oh, hello, Chester. 
There was a wonderful meeting of the minds when you went in and said you wanted to do such and such a kind of show. They could they could picture and understand and either agree or disagree with what you had in mind, but they knew what you were talking about. It was really extraordinarily easy to get a conference or a meeting with the uh, then CBS brass. Well, you mean he's out of town? That's what the note said. It seems somebody told him where he could find Jack Brand. Usually it was one man or two men, and that one man or those two men said yes or no to your idea, and you either went with it or didn't. There was no feeling of committee and that somebody upstairs would say yes or no. I had an idea that there could be a, a sort of a female gun smoke, if you will, only modern. I went to Harry Ackerman and said that I thought if we could get Joan Fontaine to play the lead in a script I'd written, we could cut an audition record. That was in the days when we used 16-inch acetate. And it would be a thing of beauty and everybody would be crazy about the whole thing. And, of course, it didn't work that way. Uh, Miss Fontaine did do the audition record, but it wasn't very good. My point, however, is... Where is he? Well, there he is, sitting on that wagon. Oh, yes, that in the space of about a six-minute conversation in Harry Ackerman's office, I walked out with the knowledge that I could have a studio, an engineer, an orchestra, a recording session, a cast, and Miss Fontaine, all agreed to in about five minutes. And it takes more than that to ride up in an elevator today to one of the executive's offices. Let's get on, Brent. You first. For sure. How come you let him drive the wagon, Mr. Dillon? To keep his hands full, Chester. Here, take my shotgun and lock him up. Yes, sir. Where's the others? I thought he had three men with him. Well, tell him, Marshal. Tell him where they are. They're in the wagon, Chester. Out of that canvas. Mm-hmm. Well, are they all dead, Matt? Uh, all three of them? They're all dead, Doc. Bloodiest marshal I ever saw. It's just a wagon load of meat to him. That's enough, Brandon. It ain't hardly enough. I never seen such killing. What happened, Mr. Dillon? It doesn't matter. They put up a fight and I had to take them. Well, I'll tell him what happened. You're a lawman here. Hid himself in the grass and just waited for us to come out of that cabin. And then he yelled, so naturally we headed for cover. Who wouldn't? He just laid there and he cut loose of the shotgun. Tore up two of the boys that way. Then he stood up and he cut down Hank Smith with a six-shooter. How come you got out of it, Brain? I jumped back in the cabin and I give up. We weren't putting up a fight. He spooked us yelling like that. Make any man jump. Oh, I suppose you're trying to say that you wouldn't have shot. We tried to shoot him. Who wouldn't? Any man's got a right to defend himself. Oh, well, I never heard of resisting arrest called self-defense. I never heard of no marshal shooting down everybody on the landscape. Lock him up, Chester. Get going, Brand. Well, he actually think he was killing hogs, not men. Shut up and keep bloody as marshal. See, how come you brought the bodies back, man? Why didn't you just bury him out there? I wanted more witnesses than me to identify him, Doc. Might save trouble when Brand goes to trial. You say you were mighty lucky taking four outlaws that way, man. Yeah. yeah and you kill three out of... Oh, say, wait till people around here hear about this. Brand's right, Doc. It's a lot of killing. An awful lot. Oh, no, you don't. You don't get to thinking about it too much now, man. It's your job. You did it. So it's over. It's over? Wait till tomorrow or the next day. There'll be somebody else. There's always another man to kill. Oh, no, that's not the way to look at it, man. I, 
I've never heard of you shooting anybody you didn't have to. No, I never did. But sometimes that doesn't help much. See, you look tired, man. Well, I haven't slept since I rode out of here two days ago. Well, now, you get some rest, and you'll feel better. Sure. Brand snug in jail, Mr. Jones. He don't like it much, but I told him not to try kicking his way out, that I'd be sleeping in the office. We'll both be sleeping in the office, Chester. I'm too tired to walk to my room. Uh, take care of this wagon. And what's in it, will you? Mm-hmm. You and Doc can identify those men. We'll write it out on paper in the morning. All right, sir. Uh, I'll be coming to bed about midnight, but I'll be real quiet. Nothing could wake me, Chester. Not tonight. After Have Gun Will Travel went off the air in November of 1960, and production of Yours Truly Johnny Dollar and the revived suspense shifted to New York, Gunsmoke was the last primetime radio drama originating from Hollywood. It was tricky for those of us who were regulars on Gunsmoke, or more or less regulars on Gunsmoke, we had the last surviving live radio show. For a long time, we were the only radio show still going. Everything else had dried up and gone. At least, I've forgotten now whether it was two years or three after Gunsmoke became a television series. And we were still doing the radio show. You said a live radio show. It was on tape. Well, we did it on tape. But, I mean, but it was still... We did it as though it were live. Yeah. The End was near. Gosh, Doc, you sure I shouldn't wake him up and tell him? It can wait until morning, Chester. Matt's too tired to do anything about it tonight, anyway. Mm, I guess you're right. Of course I am. Yeah. Okay. Good night, Chester. Good night, Doc. Somebody was here. That moonlight ain't too bright. I couldn't see good at first. Sure. My, I had to yell at you a couple of times before he woke up. You was dreaming you was in a fight, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I was dreaming. Nightmares like that. They're, 
They're just terrible, ain't they? There's a bottle in the desk drawer over there. Chester, get it for me, will you? Yes, sir, I know where it is. I used to have nightmares sometimes when I was a boy, but I don't get them much no more. Here it is, Mr. Dillon. A good step drink will do you good. Uh, thanks, Chester. he was. But, Mr. Dillon, now that you're awake, there's something I ought to tell you. Oh, what? Well, me and Doc was having a drink over at the Alpergans, and a fella come in there and started talking real loud. Talking about what? Well, sir, mostly about how he's going to tree-dodge and how he's going to tell you, too. Oh? He says he's a friend of Jack Brand's, and he's heard about how you caught him and all. What's his name? Stanger. Joe Stanger. Yeah, I know him. Do you think he'll cause trouble? Probably. But I'm not going to worry about him tonight. Mm, so that's what me and Doc figured. He won't try nothing tonight. All the same, keep your gun handy, Chester. Now let's try to get some sleep. Chester, it's hardly dawn. That's right, I'd like to throw a bucket of water on him. Oh, shut up, Brand, I'm coming. Tossed it to you right through those bars on the window. I didn't know Stanger was in town. Didn't you? Chester, get some boards and nail them over the window so nothing can get through it. I'll fix it, Mr. Dillon. Oh, wait a minute. Marshal, that's the only window in here. You can't board it up. You'll get enough air. No, but it'll be dark. I don't like it dark. Don't you? When you get it fixed, we'll go to breakfast, Chester. It won't take long, Mr. Dillon. On Saturday, April 29th, 1961. The Gunsmoke crew gathered for the last time to record episodes for the series. They did not know 
The show was to be canceled. By that time, you were recorded ahead, and we were all very grateful that we had enough shows recorded in the can, so to speak, that we did not know when we were doing our last one. I don't think it would have been a very enjoyable day for us to go in there knowing that this was it. We kind of we had, I missed five out of about 530. Wait a minute, As a lot of shows have done now, I think we entered areas that Westerns, indeed the radio shows, had not entered before. There was a little of the psychological involved, and there were instances where sometimes right did not triumph, mm -hmm. as in the real world. And the thing about Gunsmoke, it became a labor of love for all of us. I know I still have a big library of Western fact and fiction mm -hmm. of that era. You're up early, Stinger. Train leaves for Abilene in about an hour. Going to Abilene? I'll be back next week. Jack Brandt will still be in jail. We were a pretty intact group there. We had the same director, the same assistant director, the same script girl, the same engineer, the same sound crew. The music was the same, and... Uh, in addition to the four regulars, there probably were not more than 20 or 25 people who were used. It formed a pretty tight nucleus, a stock company, as it were, for that. And the show, I think that if, if we had been given just an outline, I think that Bill and Howard and Georgia and I and some of the regulars, I think we could have ad-libbed the show if... It was that tight and that close? Yeah. So we got close to know to each other's it. timing so well mm -hmm. and anticipate each other's... Thoughts. I, I remember. What for? They got you out of sight if nothing else. I wouldn't go to jail, Marshall. Little things like, well, Dylan had told Chester to put some wood on the fire. And the sound of the logs going on there. And I went, <coughs> he said, well, get out of the smoke. <laughs> Just as an ad lib, huh? Green, you should have got dry. And then we went on with whatever we were doing. And things like that. The final episode aired on June 18th, 1961. Produced and directed in Hollywood by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Gene Bates, John Daner, Barney Phillips, and Harry Bartell. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. This broadcast concludes the current Gunsmoke series. Next week at this time, the CBS Radio Network and its affiliated stations will welcome back the distinguished dramatic favorite, Suspense. The premiere of this new Suspense cycle will be Alan Sloan's gripping original play, Call Me at Half Past. Be with us next Sunday at this same time for the return to these stations of Suspense. This is George Walsh speaking. Blacks are on Arthur Godfrey, weekdays on the CBS radio network. Although Gunsmoke's TV version with its different crew aired into the mid-1970s, the most influential radio western of the last decade of the Golden Age was over. And Gunsmoke started on the air in 52, as we've mentioned, and... Network radio was beginning to die just at the time we were starting. 
I guess what I mean is that in those early days, if you were doing a uh, a series and the series was canceled, something else popped up and you were told to start preparing for a show called such and such, which would go on the air next Tuesday. There was always something to replace the show that went off the air. By the end of the 50s, and certainly by the 60s, when a show went off the air, that was just the end of that half hour or that hour or that two hour segment and it was filled with something else and that something else usually came from New York it was a sad period for those of us who were fond of radio and enjoyed radio and indeed had been brought up in radio and it was not um, believe me a, a matter of sour grapes because all of us who were then working on the radio show were also busy and gainfully employed on the television show or some other television show. Bill Conrad was producing and directing in television. Later he became an executive at Warner Brothers. At the same time, John Meston was writing, I think he wrote as many as 40 half-hour television episodes in one year. He was also writing regularly when it went to an hour, the television version, some 12 to 15 episodes a year. So we were all busy. But it was really the fact that dramatic radio from the West Coast was drying up. Gunsmoke passed away, if you will, just at a time when there were new kinds of audio equipment coming on the scene that would have made it marvelous. For instance, if Gunsmoke had been done in stereo or quadraphonic, if you can picture Matt's horse coming down Front Street, the whole length of it is passing from one side of your living room to the other just as it passed from one end of Dodge to the other. Or Matt's booted feet working their way all the way across the street and up the steps and into Doc's office on the second floor. It would have been rather wonderful to hear this, but radio was already on its way out then. There was now no network dramatic radio originating from Hollywood. There was a thing that was happening at that time, which I don't know whether anybody knows about, and maybe not even you, but at that time, stereo was just beginning to show its head. Now, Have Gun Will Travel, Gunsmoke, the radio shows that did exist at that time, were getting ready to produce radio drama in stereo. But because the decision had been made to, uh, to get rid of, of radio drama, that too naturally disappeared because the whole concept of radio drama was destroyed. And along with it, any new idea that might be uh, in waiting for us. And that was stereo. That's a pity. How do I stereo drama and radio? Stereo would be fantastic. If there is a silver lining, it's that because Gunsmoke came to radio in 1952, after transcription became widespread, many episodes exist today in good to master quality. A new listener can begin with the first episode, Billy the Kid, and listen straight through. The following year, on September 30th, 1962. CBS canceled Johnny Dollar and Suspense. The network would have no dramatic shows in their programming block until 1974. 
American West. Once it could have been the British, Spanish, or even the Russian West. It became American primarily because of the explorations of two young army officers, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. Their pioneering journey stands as one of the great achievements in the history of the United States. While CBS ended Gunsmoke on radio in June of 1961, the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service continued to broadcast reruns of radio shows for U.S. troops. Captain Lewis. Hello, Sergeant. In early 1963, they commissioned a series specifically intended for the U.S. and U.N. personnel. And ran into an Indian situation that looked tight for a little while, but you know me, Produced in Studio B of Capitol Records in Hollywood, it was called Horizons West and told the remarkable 8,000-mile journey of Lewis and Clark's expedition in 13 parts. Noble Sir Thomas, the champion of the common man. Good old Mr. Jefferson. He made it. He made it. Huh. Republicans are all alike. No control. What was that, Sergeant? <clears throat> are you criticizing me or Mr. Jefferson? Just giving an opinion, sir. What this country needs is a ruling class. Sergeant, you're an idiot. Three cheers for Tom Jefferson! What's going on here? I'm trying to work. Oh, <clears throat> it's you, Lewis. Yes, sir. The sergeant just told me Mr. Jefferson was elected president. And you're letting everybody know you're friends with him, is that it? I voted for him, if that's what you mean. No, not exactly, Captain. There's a letter for you from him in my office. Come in. A letter from Mr. Jefferson? Looks to me like a personal letter. Well, our families are neighbors in Virginia. Here. It came by special messenger day before yesterday. Thank you, sir. This is a surprise to hear from him when he's busy taking over such a big job. Well, Captain, good news or bad? Dear Lieutenant Lewis, <laughs> I'll have to tell him I made captain, huh, sir? In view of my recent election to the presidency of the United States, I find that I will require a private secretary. Your tact and social adaptability, your knowledge of the Western country, of the Army, has rendered it desirable for public as well as private purposes that you should be engaged in that office. If you accept, please obtain approbation from General Wilkinson and repair to the presidential mansion, Washington City. What do you think of that, Colonel? I am to be the new private secretary to the president. I don't understand it, Lewis. You, a secretary? Why not, sir? Well, if your written reports are any indication, you don't have a hand. You have a rooster scratch, and you can't spell. Come, Captain. Why would the President want you for a secretary? Very simple, Colonel. He likes me. Horizons West, the continued story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. Now, with Harry Bartell as Meriwether Lewis and John Anderson as William Clark, listen to Chapter One. Mr. Jefferson's Dream. Scriptwriters Carl and William Tunberg accurately dramatized the most important events of the voyage. Stage and TV actor John Anderson was chosen to be William Clark, while the role of Meriwether Lewis went to radio veteran Harry Bartell. Sebastian Cabot played Toussaint Charbonneau, and Cliff Holland voiced York. Backing up the leads were well-known West Coast character actors like Herb Ellis, Sam Edwards, Jack Crucian, Les Tremaine, 
Don Diamond, and Frank Gerstle. kept secret as long as possible and would need superlative leadership. After considering a number of young men, Jefferson finally selected the leader, Meriwether Lewis, and had ensured the secrecy of the choice by offering him the job of private secretary to the president. My name is Meriwether Lewis, and I'm making what the colonel has called rooster scratches in my journal. In March of 1801, I was 26 years old, a captain in the 1st Infantry and paymaster for the regiment. I liked army life, even though being paymaster meant I had to travel constantly through the wilderness parts of Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, and along the Mississippi frontier in order to pay the scattered troops of the regiment. I managed to make the rounds about twice a year. Anyway, on March 6, 1801, the day after I received my letter from Mr. Jefferson, I left the Army Depot in Pittsburgh on my way to Washington, the new federal city. The spring rains made the roads a slew of mud, and it took me over two weeks to reach the White House. Mr. Jefferson had gone for a short vacation to Monticello, but he left instructions for me to move into his quarters, where I would receive free food and lodging and a salary of $600 per year, much better than captain's pay, I might add. So I unpacked and tried to get settled before the president returned. Although the program didn't see the light of day until later in the decade, its broad appeal reached a large audience. Children of the U.S. Armed Forces were learning about their country's history in an easy and enjoyable way. At least three years after Horizons West, the Armed Forces Radio and TV Service commissioned a new series, produced and directed by Bill Lolly. It was called When the West Was Young. General, I've made my decision. I'm a newspaper man, and I joined this expedition to get a story. If I'm going to get the whole story, I have to see it through to the end. Stand up high and face west, and see their footprints span a continent before you. Footprints that were made when the West was young. Writers William Tunberg and Milton P. Kahn centered the dramatizations around lesser-known people of the Western frontier, like this episode of newsman Mark Kellogg starring Harry Bartell. Mark Kellogg rode with General George Armstrong Custer into the Battle of the Little Bighorn. It is May 13th, 1876. It is Saturday in Bismarck, North Dakota. And in the office of the Bismarck Tribune, a man sits at his desk finishing up his copy before the press begins to turn out the next edition. He's a quiet man, middle 30s, but a man with a restless spirit, the urge to be out where things are happening an urge which will shortly involve him in the most fateful assignment of his life. Listen now as Harry Bartell portrays Mark Kellogg in The Last Dispatch. Uh, 
Mark? Yes, Colonel Lounsbury. Uh, will you step in my office for a minute? Yes, sir. Uh, sit down. Yes, sir. Mark, you've been with the Tribune as my editorial assistant since I established it. That's right, three years ago when I first came to Bismarck. Gene Twombly was the sound effects technician. He'd honed his craft on the Gene Autry show, The Whistler, and the Jack Benny program. Radio sound effects had progressed to the point where transcribed sounds could be laid over recorded dialogue. That's why I got myself on as a part-time correspondent for the Western Associated Press and the New York Herald. Well, something's come up. While the group of West Coast character actors had been appearing together on radio for an entire generation, by 1965, employment opportunities for dramatic radio actors and actresses were all but gone. Because I remember the 50s, she must have made 30, 40 films. 50 well, I'll films. tell you what happened. As Herb was saying, in those days, we were very, very, very busy in radio. When television came around, all of the writers and producers and directors from radio were the early pioneers of television. Like Jess Oppenheimer was the producer of Lucy. So we knew them all, and they didn't know where to go. And we'd say, hey, you know, how about it? He'd say, yeah, I got something coming up, available next week. So I was very, very busy in the early days of television. No, we just drifted with the people that we knew and they felt comfortable with us. I'll tell you, one of the saddest days of my life was when they changed from a six-day-a-week to a five-day-a-week. The early television shows, most of them would shoot for three days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now, all of a sudden, there's a five-day week. Now, you can't do two shows a week. You can do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. Now, the Thursday and Friday one's going to carry over to Monday. Now, you can't do Monday, Tuesday. Oh, boy, that was terrible. <laughs> I, I also think you have to remember the early days of television were half-hour cowboy or sitcom. And then they developed. So if you had, let's say, 30 half-hours of shows, let's say five shows in one night, seven days a week, is 35 shows, okay? Ultimately, they started the live... Playhouse 90s, Pontiac Playhouse, Matinee, and so they found the hour format. And then they went to the hour show, so we're talking about now actors and craft, guild people, where there used to be all of these different crews working on all these half-hour shows, all of a sudden, one whole crew and one whole bunch of actors cut disappeared, cut in half, and then ultimately, hour and a half. And then huge sales of motion pictures to television, and you cut those hour and a halfs by Boku, and you had nothing. Then the, in the 60s, from 1959 to 1966 or 7 or 8, there was a tremendous unemployment. I remember sitting at the Brown Derby with McDonald Carey. We had done a, uh, a Jason, and uh, Ricardo Montalban came by and sat down. And they were talking about how they were being asked to take a cut. This is about 1952 or three. That they were being asked to take a cut. The producers already started to cut down on the wage scale. And the scale that Ricardo Montalban was being asked to work for was a scale that I had finally worked myself up to. 
And I said, holy cow, if, he's, if McDonald Carey and Ricardo Montalban are going to be asked to work for that kind of money, where do I have to go back to the $65 a day well, minimum? And it, boy, it happened. They just went right down the toilet. What I mean, happened is that they used to call these little bits that we played, like uh, they went for a day or two or were two, three, four pages, they called them cameos and they'd give them to a star. And they'd give the star like a top salary of a thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. And you know, we finally worked our way up to two, three, yeah. four, five hundred dollars a yeah. day. You know, how many days do you work? You don't so work they could that put many. the star's name on the marquee. There's one other thing to answer your question too. As I said, I was so busy when television started. But suddenly, there was so much television going on out here that the actors in New York started swarming oh. out here. Well, now, okay. when the actors swarmed out here, the directors followed. And when all the directors came out here, they started using the New York actors' adventure. Their friends and, that they were familiar and with. The, and the guys with. who had been doing a lot of television, like me, suddenly, it ain't there anymore. Well, yeah. It was a very dry period. That's that Herb's right. talking about. Very dry. It was tough. Yeah. I was lucky to have found cocaine and marijuana, and I was... <laughs> Mary, no! God, let, let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything. I really was most anxious to come here today because I wanted to thank all of you for your support on Sears Radio Theater. Just to give you a brief history, a year ago, this past June, last month, I was invited to meet some people at lunch. A man named John Beebe and a woman named Ingrid Carlson. And they said, we want to do a radio show five nights a week different type of show every night, different host every night. And we have all three networks interested. Would you be interested in being in charge of this program? You can do whatever you want. So I said, the worst thing that can happen to you in show business is that you're a hit. Because then you get stuck with something that you hate, and every day you have to get up and do something you really loathe. And this might work, so I better think about it. So I went home, and Mary and I talked it over, and... Uh, we said, well, we'll give it a shot and see what happens. 
and I was in the middle of writing some scripts at Warner's, television scripts, and I had a book that a publisher wanted to buy with an option for a second book. But I called these people and I said, okay. From that start, as of yesterday noon, we are on a network of 194 radio stations. We will be finishing recording 130 original radio dramas, 80% of which were written by people under the age of 35 who not only had never written a radio show before, we had to show them what the form of a script was. They had never heard a radio show before. Nelson Riddle has written 130 scores, and I was told on Friday that it looked almost certain that we would be renewed for a second year because... Because of support and mail and coming to the Morgan Show and helping us out like you did. The first eight markets that they have gotten any news about listeners, Sears Radio Theater has increased the listeners in those first markets 56%. You don't have to any longer just remember the old days. There are now new days of radio and new stuff thanks to all of you. In 1979, Elliot Lewis teamed up with fellow radio veteran Fletcher Markle for a unique method towards reviving dramatic radio. The Buying Network would air a new one-hour anthology each weeknight. Each day would have a different theme. Ingrid Carlson, at the time a Sears TV commercial supervisor, persuaded Sears Vice President John Beebe to underwrite 130 episodes. Production cost $1.2 million dollars, or over four million today. CBS bought the show. That's the theme from Sears Radio Theater, which will be brought to you Monday through Friday on this station. Today you'll hear a story of the Golden West with Lorne Green as your host. Tomorrow you can laugh with Andy Griffith as your host for things that are funny. Wednesday, Vincent Price will bring you a generous helping of mystery, suspense, and detective stories. Thursday, Cicely Tyson will enthrall you with tales of love and hate, dramas involving human emotions. And Friday, Richard Widmark will host tales of adventure in outer space, under the sea, anywhere there is adventure. The Sears Radio Theater will begin after this message from your local station. The Sears Radio Theater debuted on Monday, February 5th, 1979, with a Western entitled Retribution. It was hosted by Bonanza's Lauren Green. Along with the CBS Radio Mystery Theater, the network now aired two dramatic shows. This is Lauren Green. The wagon train is moving west across barren, windswept plains. Far ahead, several days' travel at the least, the foothills of a distant mountain range swim in heat waves. One of the wagons, pulled by a seedy team of horses, is driven by a slender, shifty-eyed man. Beside him sits his wife, the clear memory of beauty in a lined face. Get up! Get up there! I'd like to get up in front, instead of being in the rear all the time. <laughs> Less dust that way. It was your idea, Bristol. 
joining this wagon train at the last minute. Leaving everything behind and all. Well, I told you a thousand times, Hope. I got tired of apologizing to everybody all the time. Now, you ain't the first man to serve time in prison. I was railroaded. You was caught. Oh, my backside. Wish you could do something about this secret. Yeah. Yeah, we'll find ourselves a plot of ground somewhere out west. Somewhere we can grow things on. We could grow things where we was. Yeah, folks just won't let you live down a prison record. Where do you aim to leave this wagon train and settle down? Out west, woman. I ain't never been there neither, you know. Well, it better be pretty soon, Bristol. My backside's just about had this wagon seat. And that's only the beginning of our story. Sears Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Brought to you five nights a week by Sears Roebuck and Company. Sears, where America shops. Your hosts, Lorne Green. I'll bring you stories of the Old West and the New. Andy Griffith with a look at the funny side of life. Vincent Price with tales of mystery and suspense. Cicely Tyson with stories about love, hate, and related things. Richard Widmark. I'll bring you stories of pure adventure. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week. Brought to you in Elliot Lewis' production of The Sears Radio Theater. Our story, Retribution, by Ted Sherdeman. Our stars, John McIntyre and Jeanette Nolan. The guest host tracks, which have been gotten at a separate time when we were fortunate enough to have the guest host in town. We had one place near the end of the season. I thought, we're never going to finish this. Cicely was in New York. Vinny was in Hong Kong. Andy was in North Carolina. Widmark had gotten so angry at a picture company that left him on a Russian trawler somewhere in the Alaskan waters that he'd flown to London, then went to Connecticut and hid... And I had to get Howie Duff to come in and finish the season. Wid said, I'm not going to do anything anymore. I'm just not going to do anything anymore. Well, okay. And Lauren, I think he was in Hawaii. And we needed tracks from all of them. I mean, we had no tracks. We had nothing to assemble, and the shows had to be shipped on Saturday. And they all arrived within a day of each other. And poor Mark Trello was in there making copies, I thought the machine would blow up, of all of their material from each of the shows, and then we just kept dragging them in. Got them, and we got everything. Available at most Sears retail stores. Bristol and Hope Gaston left the wagon train in Idaho to take hold of 160 acres of land they'd never seen. Land on which they planned to start a new life. With high hopes, they set out from the county seat at Hadleyville to see their spread. And they saw it. They were the owners of a dry, sparse piece of land with a few mountainous hills. It was worse than anything they could have imagined. I can see now why the government gives it away. Nothing for nothing. I could just cry. Yeah. Be the first moisture this land has ever felt. Get up. What are we going to do, Bristol? 
Only thing we can. Wait for the next wagon train to come through and look for something else. Wait? But we starved to death. Got exactly $21 left and what we got on our backs. Hmm. That's all we got, huh? That and my bracelet with the gold coin dangling from it. What are you stopping for, Bristol? Them hills or mountains. They give me an idea. Let me see that bracelet and gold coin, Hope. Here. Why? Uh It'd work, especially after we dug into one of them a little ways. What are you talking about, Bristol? Mm -hmm. Hope, we're going to dig ourselves a mine. What? We'll sell shares in it and have all the money we want. Sell shares? What are you talking about? I'll buy you a bracelet that'll knock them dead. Get up, horses. Get up. Well, you've turned around. Hang on, hope, old girl. Pick out one of them hills. What for? For our mine. That's what's for. Bristol, are you all right in the head? I've never been better. We're going to dig into that hill there. And I'm going to cut up the bracelet and the gold coin on it. Stuff the pieces into my shotgun and salt the mine. With my bracelet? A nugget's a nugget, woman. I don't get your drift, Bristol. Well, you will, Hope. You will. Many of the stars of Radio's Golden Age got involved. John Daner was an early guest star. Okay, let's take another call. Hi, you're on KNPC with Neil Ross and John Daner. Go ahead. Good evening. Good evening. My name is Sydney. Yes, Sydney. I wanted to talk to John Dana. Go right ahead. He keeps mentioning old-time radio, but he did a radio fairly recently. On the Sears Radio Theater and also called the Mutual Radio Theater. Sydney, you're right. Absolutely right. And for Elliot Lewis. Yeah, right. Sure. And I work at the B. Dalton Bookshop in Hollywood. One of our customers up there is Alan Caillou, the yeah. author, the, the actor. The oh, yes, yeah. That, uh, he wrote uh, a couple of the shows I did. Yeah. He sort of a soldier of fortune. That's right, yes. He mentioned to me one day there was talk that you might do a series based on the character. <laughs> Nobody mentioned that to me. Oh. <laughs> but anyway. I guess it just didn't last. It really didn't, but... I did several of those, and it was a joy. It was really a lot of fun to do a radio drama again. Between February 5th, 1979, and February 28th, 1980, CBS offered two weeknight hours of revival drama to its affiliates. Writers were paid $350 per script. Actors were paid a union-scale wage of $80 per hour. There you go. Hold them. Bite them. They're real all right. Obviously, you cannot continue to do five anthologies a week. There's nothing for the audience to relate to except the guest host. It's very difficult for the writers. We just got lucky that nobody got ill this year and that people kept thinking of story outlines and stuff. What we have done, if anybody has been listening with any regularity, Ken Gerard wrote a thing that Pat Buttram did, and it worked out funny, so we did another one. So there is a second one. Fontaine Harris in Hollywood. The first one ended where they're on their way west. The second one ends where they have just bought a motion picture studio. So that there is a chance for Pat to continue with Shep doing the French leading man and Barney doing the dummy assistant and Sandy Gould doing the gal that goes with them. What I'm trying to do without pushing it or without even discussing it with either Sears or CBS. How do you plan to do that? 
is that by the time we finish the second year, we should find five or six or seven characters or groups of characters or situations that work in each category and be able to get little, start to put those together. Unfortunately, even with greats like Norman Corwin and Arch Obler writing plays, the concept failed to generate enough listener support. In early 1980, Sears pulled back some of its sponsorship commitment. They were struggling to fill all 12 network and local commercial spots with exclusively Sears offerings. CBS dropped the series after February 11, 1980. Three days later, the mutual broadcasting system picked up the show. This is Lauren Green. We're going back now to the Old West, to a time and place where life was simpler, more honest, and certainly more violent. Where men and women were always what they seemed to be, except at certain times and in certain places. And that's the story you're about to hear. A story of a man who really might not have been what he seemed. A man who felt himself to be outside the law, and who finally had to make a terrible decision. Now let me introduce you to our storyteller, the Reverend Thomas Haller, a hard, gray, little man of God, and former cavalryman, a minister well-suited to the needs of his frontier flock. It was a warm April morning in 1879 when Bill Miller showed us his true colors. Picture him now in his general store on Main Street, sweating a bit in spite of the mildness of the day. A small boy named Jason had just returned from delivering the latest order of groceries and rubs on his sleeve the bright new copper penny he has earned. Bill Miller is tired and bored. His last customers, a pair of churchly ladies, poked their noses through his finest yards of Belgian lace for nearly an hour, then went away declaring none of it fit for purchase. Ah, but here are two new customers. Storekeep, we want to look at your dresses. Yeah, we want to look at your dresses. Well, I think you gents come to the wrong place. The Tin Dipper's right next door, as fine a saloon as ever served three-day-old rot gut. And so they looked each other over. The middle-aged storekeeper in the loose white apron and string tie. And two easy-moving men with rimroll stetsons low over wide, dark, staring eyes. Miller's heart was beating very fast, as it always did when he'd faced a real hard case or two. But on this soft-spoken April morning, something new entered the equation. These two hard cases were in for a surprise themselves, for they've just met a storekeeper who's just a little bit more than they'd ever met before. And that's only the beginning of our story. The network promised the renamed Mutual Radio Theater would attract sponsorship. But after the 12 local and national commercial spots, total dramatic time for the hour-long broadcast was just 37 minutes. Mutual Radio Theater, a new adventure in radio listening. Five nights of exceptional entertainment every week, brought to you in Elliot Lewis's production of the Mutual Radio Theater. Demand quickly fell off. By the summer of 1980, most spots were filled with PSAs. 
Sears, for its part, continued to sponsor in gradually withering spots right into the end. Mutual terminated the series after December 19, 1980. In the early 1980s, Elliot Lewis spoke with John Dunning for his 71K News Talk Radio Denver program about his 1970s radio work on both the Zero Hour and the Sears Radio Theater. His disappointment was still evident. As I go back into what I know about your career, and instead of starting at the beginning, going back from now, we look back about nine years ago, and you were directing and producing a series called The Zero Hour, which was syndicated. Yeah, radio show. I listened to some of those tapes of that show, and, uh, you know, you guys did just about everything you could possibly do. You had top-line talent, good writing, solid stories. Mm -hmm. Why didn't it work? They couldn't sell it. That's what I mean. Do you have a theory about why radio today will not go on stations anymore? Yeah, I think there's no national advertiser support. Incidentally, I was listening to your on-the-air thing, and I heard Fletcher giving the closing credits. Was that a Studio One? Yes. Because Fletcher was my partner, right-hand general assistant in the, the Sears Radio Theater, Mutual Radio Theater, that we just completed. And we ran into the same problems there. We just completed doing 235 original hours on the CBS radio network. That <laughs> was the Sears show. Mutual picked up the second year. They had to give it up because where stations would be able to sell to national sponsors, for example, KNX here is a CBS station and yet carried the Mutual radio theater. Locally, George Nikolov, KNX, was able to sell the local time allotments to national sponsors. If I could name a few of them, Lufthansa, General Motors, Wall Street Journal, were buying local spots on KNX, and yet national sponsors were not supporting the show. Hi, you're on KMPC with Neil Ross and John Daner. Go ahead. This is Barbara. Mr. Daner, what a thrill to meet you on the phone. Well, Barbara, hi. I'm also a collector and a fan of old radio, and gosh, you have done so much. But there's one thing that you said tonight that I just had to ask you about. I've always wanted to know something about the Hermit's Cave, and to have an opportunity to get it straight from the Hermit's mouth is <laughs> such a thrill. Oh, uh, did you do that out of KMPC? Yes, KMPC uh, when KMPC was in Beverly Hills, sure. Uh, WJR in Detroit also claims that they produced it there. Do you know anything about that? No. If they did, they lie. <laughs> <laughs> we did it okay. because and I was. Earlier, you were mentioning the Durango Kid. Yeah. Uh, were you trying to think of Charles Starrett? Charles Starrett, love, that's who it was. He was my favorite B Western cowboy when I was growing up. Well. And I was his favorite heavy. <laughs> uh, Mr. Daner, I'm also a member of the board of Spurback, and we would just love to have you come to one of our meetings and talk to us. Well, uh, I would be delighted to. How Why don't we you? Get in touch with you? Why stay on the line? I'll have Dan take your number down, and maybe Mr. Daner can contact you later. Would that be acceptable? That'd be fine, sure. Okay. Stay, so. stay on the line, and Dan will get a phone number from you, and we'll... Hopefully be able to set it up for you, okay? Okay, thank you very much. Hold on. Thank you, Barbara. 
By the time the Mutual Radio Theater and the CBS Radio Mystery Theater drew to a close in the early 1980s, radio drama was dead. At least, that was the opinion of executives at the four major networks and advertising agencies around the U.S. It wasn't true. Radio never died in England or Canada. New dramatic productions by the BBC and CBC continued to air with large listenership. Here in the United States, networks like National Public Radio have created and adapted new dramas, while satellite dramatic productions have kept the genre alive. At the turn of the 21st century, thanks to cable, there were more television networks than at any point in history. Simultaneously, the internet was transforming into a high-speed band capable of near-real-time uploads, downloads, and streams. This, with the combination of computer and at-home recording technology advancements, has allowed for a podcasting industry to develop. Today, new audio dramas are being produced and made available to a growing audience. Will we ever see a dramatic audio boom like during the golden age of radio? That's hard to say. But so long as Americans continue to crave the new and unseen, what's been old long enough to seem new again will always have a chance to entertain. That's true for both an over-the-air medium like audio and those summer locales, which were once the center of American entertainment culture. Well, the glass house can only cause trouble, I'm sure. Let us see. I ho, alas, the lack of day, Falstaff's here to make you gay. What, um... What new poems come hot from your griddle tonight, Falstaff? When summer comes. How does it go? When summer comes and the hot winds blow, I pack a lunch and away I go. Down in the subway, the BMT, it's yoinks away to the open sea. <laughs> First in the briny, I splash my feet. Then on the sand, I sit and eat. Sardines, dry bread, frozen custard, popcorn, ice cream, hot dogs with mustard. Then lying back in my bathing suit damp, I moan and I groan, getting cramp after cramp. Where else can you swim and get tanned half bare by an ocean beach for a five-cent fare? You can have the mountains, dude ranch, and spa. Give me Coney Island. It's Shangri-La. And as Paul Stan takes his canoe paddle and heads for the subway, we turn our attention to the democracy. Next time on Breaking Walls, as beaches and parks open for summer, we heat up and cool off at Coney Island. Once the center of American entertainment during the first part of the 20th century, this stretch of beach, street, and boardwalk in Brooklyn, New York brought forth innovations like the neonatal incubator, the roller coaster, the hot dog, and the radio. reading material used in today's episode was On the Air, the Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, Radio Rides the Range, 
a reference guide to Western drama on the air, 1929-1967, by Jack French and David S. Siegel. Network Radio Ratings, 1932-53, by Jim Ramsberg, as well as several 1950s articles from Broadcasting Magazine. On the interview front, Lillian Bayef, John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Herb Ellis, Virginia Gregg, Elliot Lewis, Vic Perrin, and Herb Vigren were with Spurdvac. For more information, please go to Spurdvac.com. Harley Bear, William Conrad, John Daner, Rex Corey, and Norman McDonald were with John Hickman. Mr. Hickman was the longtime host of WAMU's Recollections. Today, this program is heard each Sunday evening as the big broadcast. For more information, please go to WAMU.org. William N. Robeson was with Dick Bertel and Ed Corcoran from WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. This interview can be heard at goldenage-wtic.org. Harley Bear was with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chat at speakingofradio.com. John Daner was also heard with Neil Ross for KMPC on March 23, 1982. While Elliot Lewis was with John Dunning for his 1980-71KNUS program from Denver. And Raymond Burr was with Jack Webster in 1963. Selected music featured in today's episode was The Theme to a Summer Place by Percy Faith, Mr. Sandman by The Cordettes, Young at Heart by Frank Sinatra, and Come Down My Evening Star by Joan Morris and William Bolcom. Special thanks to our sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater, the Mutual Audio Network, 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Find them all on iTunes or at their links in the written credits. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurdvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls episode 92 will open the summer season with a look at radio on Coney Island. We'll head to the beach with some of the most famous people from the medium's golden age. This episode will be available beginning June 1st, 2019, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever podcasting platform you listen. And if you've got some spare change, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 per month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So until June 1st, 2019, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, Episode 91. I hope you enjoyed the Western Trilogy, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. Thank you.